I'm a raw squad up. Peace and blessings to everyone. I want to welcome you again to another session of what we have with the I'm a raw squad, more scholarship. And the topic this evening is going to be DNA facts versus fiction, the truth versus the pseudo. We'll be discussing the DNA from Africa and North American and my results from uh, this week's uh, New Orleans uh, slave plantations. And uh, just some questions on are we Native Americans? Are we Washita's? Um, are we indigenous Moors? And was the slave trade real? So again, I think a lot of very, very important topics that we'll be touching on. Let me just uh, make sure we put this extra link up for the guests that would like to view this evening. So <clears throat> If everyone would like to share the show, um, just so we can uh, circulate the, the feed for people to view or to join us, that would be greatly appreciated. So we can do that right now also. And I would definitely like to uh, welcome the guests that are coming in. I see we have the Queen uh, Danielle with us. How are you doing this evening, Queen? Hello. Peace, peace. I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, we'll no also, problem. <laughs> we also have our brother James here. Brother James, how are you doing this evening, brother? I am. Um... Uh, fantastic, brother Ish. I have absolutely no complaints. I'm uh, in the process of sending out some uh, shares with the links to get some more people that are actually interested in this topic. It's a hot topic, and I'll make sure that I did not want to miss out this evening. Oh, that's what's up. That's what's up. And you uh, sharing your wisdom will be greatly appreciated also. And we also have our brother, Lord Abba, Sheikh Way L. Peace and blessings to you, Sheikh Way L. How you doing this evening, brother? Oh, uh, Islam, Islam, brother man. Peace and blessings to each and every last one of you. What's going on, brother man? Oh, man, it's always good to hear from you, brother. I'm doing well, you know, working hard, staying strong, and really enjoying Sunday, digging in, getting a lot of research, and just uh, spending a lot of quality time. So it's all good, bro. Definitely. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, so as we're sharing the information, we will... Uh, be able to go in on the topic. I think what's really important about dispelling a lot of the myths or really just adding some clarity to the situation is that as uh, as we take advantage of the technology of the DNA, it's supposed to be bridging a lot of the gaps and, and making sure that we're on the same page. And we touched on it uh, a little bit last night. And as doing the follow-up today, um, it was one of the topics that were that was brought up in the in the, in the forum. Again, the name of the forum is the uh, Amira Squad African Moorish uh, Scholarship. And it's a new branch of the Amira Squad, what we're focusing on, the Amira Squad African Moorish Scholarship. 
um, I think is one of the most important aspects of our particular history because um, it branches off from our sub-Saharan African origins, our Nilo-Saharan origins, where it branches up and branches off into West Africa. Um, our important uh, Moorish tribes that come from the uh, from the Canaanite areas um, and that rich history also. Um, our African uh, Arab origins um, and dealing with all of the African spiritual systems. So this particular aspect of our history is something that's uh, we're collecting the data and the documentation and the scholarship and uh, we're just trying to emphasize the importance of our African origins in all aspects. So again, feel free to put in and, and join us on the Amira Squad African Moor Scholarship and we'll be happy to have you. Just one moment. Let's see what we got here. Here we go. So um, the aspect of what we were talking about, we were posting up some DNA results. And uh, what was very important with that was um, myself and one of the brothers, Higgs Boson, um, we were dealing with the, the E1B1, uh, 1A. And then uh, my, my, that was his uh, DNA, and mine was E1B1, uh, A81. Um, and we're dealing with different aspects of the DNA and how it branches off into southern Morocco, branches of Morocco, um, West Africa, of course, um, Guinea-Bissau, um, the Western Africa, up into the northern regions also. And I think that this is what we have to do in order to make sure that we're dealing with an accurate history and that we're not selling fiction, number one, to ourselves, and number two, to the masses of the people. So the question I would like to ask to the panel is how important do you think it is to have um, DNA and uh, to understand your genealogy uh, scientifically? How important do you think that is? Uh, Islam, let me, if, if you don't mind, I, I'm not an expert on this topic. Brother Ngozi, when we used to speak regularly, he used to be schooling me and I would then, you know, kind of come up with, I would do some research on what some of what he was saying, and which led me into more independent research. I think that it's important because it shows the dispersion of certain groups and tribes and clans. I seen uh, the piece that you posted yesterday, and it was talking about R0A haplogroup that's found in, uh, what was that, Arabia? but it was also found in certain parts of North Africa. And I think that DNA is very important in that regard. But I think what's going on now is that people are using that as a counter. Like one brother asked me the question. You know, he said, have you taken a DNA test? I said, no, I haven't taken a DNA test. Now, you know, I will eventually take one, but I don't, you know, it's not something that I'm pressing for at the moment. And, you know, he tried to use that as a science versus religious thing. You know, DNA testing was not always available. You know, this is a new phenomenon here. You know, it was just all about bloodline. And it has always been about bloodline. All of the major battles in Europe were, were over bloodline. Even if it was inter-Christian battles, Christianity versus Islam, 
Christianity versus paganism, all all of those things combined, it was over bloodlines. And I think, you know, that we need to place, I'm not going to say more emphasis, but I will say as much emphasis on bloodline as we place on understanding DNA of where everybody comes from. Um, I'm, I don't want to be long-winded, but let me just say this. At my debate with Ali Muhammad, I was breaking down the gods of Yoruba because they tried to make us Moorish Americans seem crazy because we say white equals purity. Purity means God, and God means the rule of the land because we're not looking at white in an ethnographic sense as everybody else is. We're looking at it as the concept that it is. And so one of the things that I brought up was how the Yoruba gods are called the white gods. Obatala, for instance, you know, he's the white god of, of the white gods, just simply meaning purity. And one of the things that I pointed out was that with, if you pulled all of the quote-unquote African-Americans into a pool and took a DNA test, 63.7% of African-Americans have Yoruba DNA. So that means that according to this study, and I'm not saying that there were no other studies done after that, but according to this study, the predominant DNA of the African-American group, if you will, which encompasses all of us, was 63.7% durable. Now, you know, that, that says a lot if we're dealing with the law of averages. And that's why I think that it's kind of faulty to place all emphasis on DNA without really looking at the bloodline and how certain groups were dispersed from certain areas, like the map that you uh, put up, you circled Arabia, then you put the line, the arrow, that, then it said Islam, to North Africa, then you put another arrow into Spain. Well, now you're dispersing all of these different DNAs. The Moors that invaded Spain, they were a group, a collective of various different Berber tribes, various different tribes that may not even have identified as Berbers. Assuredly, all of these people had different DNA groups, but they recognized themselves under one bloodline. And I think, you know, we have to kind of place importance on that. So I, I just wanted to add my two cents in on that while I sit back and learn about this whole phenomenon called DNA. Sure, sure. Thank you so much for, for sharing and responding. Yes, yes, brother Ngozi. Let me let me just let me just bring let, let me bring let me bring my teacher in. Um, Brother, Brother Ngozi is definitely uh, one of his specialties in dealing with science, in dealing with uh, genetics. Um, the very first uh, person, uh, actually the very second person, after I got my DNA results, after sharing it, of course, with my family, was I contacted Brother Ngozi uh, for him to give it a DNA analysis and just for him to share and, and espouse some of the information to me um, and some things that may be insightful. And he went over the DNA very thoroughly and uh, and he's very detailed in this particular science. I would dare say that the DNA is something that verifies the bloodline, but I will uh, I will uh, allow Brother uh, Amir to come in, uh, Brother Ngozi, to come in and share some of the knowledge and information about the importance of DNA and maybe some of the things that uh, he may be able to add some clarity to. So, Brother, if you uh, if you may, uh, you can come in and share some knowledge with us, Brother. Peace, Brother. Yes, I'm here. Peace and love to you, man. Peace. And, I'm man, I'm glad to see you, Ish. Peace and love to you, man. Much love, much respect. I'm a raw squad up. You know the old time saying, brother. And uh, Absolutely. I'm seeing what's happening. But um, when it comes to the DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid, 
we're talking about the haplogroups, which is sex chromosomes. And it's important for us to understand that haplogroup E. Um, most Berbers, whether you're Torig or um, the Almaveds or the Almoheds or the different Berber tribes, even the Nordic ones that look like um, Scandinavian type, the Kabelians that live in certain parts of Algeria, the paternal lineage is E3B. And what links all E markers together from E1B1A to E1B1B is our forefather or great-great-great-father, the predecessor, which is EP2. We all split from EP2. So most Berbers, paternally, regardless of what they look like, and our Mandinka brothers that live south of them, all have the same, you know, markers when it comes to the E1B1. It's just that some develop the E1B1B, others develop the E1B1A. You, for example, Brother Ish, was E1B1A 8A or 8-1, which is a subclave branch of EV38. EV38 itself goes back 25,000 years. <clears throat> Some say as early as 30,000, but it started to develop subclave branches when it went into West Africa and developed the M2 subclave branch, while the other group kept going north and developed the E1B1B or E1B1C, which is another subclave branch of EV38. Then you had our brother clad coming from the Horn of Africa, which is E1B1B which was all offshoots of EP2. Now, there's a lot of people that live in Morocco that have Mindy Y chromosomes, the same one that you have. You have a Mindy Y chromosome. Brother um, Lord Alba said something that was very important. He said that a lot of African-Americans have Yoruba genetics or Yoruba chromosomes. Yeah, you got to be careful with Nigeria. Fulani that live in Nigeria also have the same mark as the Yoruba who live in Nigeria. And this paternal lineage is E1B1A7A which is another subclade branch of the M2 branch that developed in the Niger-Congo area. So most Fulanis and the Yoruba have the same marker. 42% of the African-American people that were kidnapped were also descendants of Mandinka. And a large portion of them were Yoruba, and another portion of them was a few Akan, and the other portion was a small sample, a small group of them were Bimaliki from Central Africa or Cameroon. Now when it comes to the Moorish Empire, you brought up Mighty Kanju DNA ROA. That mitochondrial DNA is found in Yemen, which is one of the first offshoots of mitochondrial DNA N, which was one of the first offshoots of mitochondrial DNA L3. Mitochondrial DNA L3 gave rise to the ROA and the R, which goes back to N, which links back to the great mother L3. Some Ns kept going to the um, Nordic, I mean, further areas of the Caucasus and became the HV and the U6s and U5s and U3s that came back in through back migrations. So we have more foreign women mighty conju DNA in North Africa than we do paternal lineages. Those men, Y chromosome is indigenous to North Africa. At 60% in North Africa, most of the Egyptians are still E1B1B. And they look different because they've been breeding with different people, but their paternal line or their sex chromosome, which is their main line that makes the men, is still indigenous to the Horn of North Africa. The Horn of Africa or North Africa. The same thing with, um, you have people like the Matrustan um, family, the Melungeons. You know, they look like white people today, but their paternal line is the same paternal lineage that we have coming out of Nigeria in different parts. So, you know, it's a long story, but when it comes to DNA and how it works. So the actual new haplogroups are very important. So I have a question on that. Um, now, I, I noticed that the, the age differences were so vast between my mother's maternal line and my father's paternal line. So with my father's paternal line, the, the E1B1, that was about 25,000, but my mother's was the L2, and that L2, it was listed as like 250,000, which was more traced to like the Akan, 
still West African, but why is the disparity so much older between one being 250 and the other one being about 25 to 30? Why, why is it so extreme like that? I don't know, Brother Ngozi, is your, I don't know, maybe his mic, maybe your mic went out. I'll, I'll re-ask the question once you, once you get um, back reestablished, but uh, that'll be fine. But yeah, I, I, think, I think it is important what Brother Abba was talking about as far as um, the bloodlines, because the bloodlines, again, it ties into so many other things. It, it ties into your, your hierarchy, it ties into your land, your native status, um, your overall identity. And your indigenous uh, rights and your 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 indigenous identity itself. So I think that the bloodlines is what's always being measured as far as who is authentic and who is not. And again, that ties into your nationality. Nationality and being native is actually one and the same. One is a prerequisite for the other, and it's one and the same within its definition. Once you look at, uh, as we pointed out before, uh, Morris Populi is where is the Latin word for nationality and in that Morris Populi it means that your native identity it also ties into your your morals it ties into um, who you are as an indigenous person so whatever you're claiming that is your nationality so your bloodline means everything as far as what you represent unless you are naturalized brother Abba you were posting up something about naturalization how do you see the process or what naturalization means well, well, you know, nationality is derived, and this is according to Black's Law Dictionary, and this is a universally accepted definition. It's not <laughs> some people just crazy. They just say, oh, that's a white man law, but no, these are universally accepted definitions. But nationality arises either from birth or naturalization. And this is why, I, you know, People look at us Moorish Americans, and they, and I'm going to get to your question, but I kind of want to frame my response with kind of the totality, I don't want to say totality, but in brief, yeah, absolutely. Some, yeah, yeah. Put you know, some know what we teach, some background to it. definitely, yeah, yeah, definitely. definitely, like what Noble Drew Ali brought to us was so important, he didn't invent nationality. First and foremost, people think he invented nationality, so they want to reject it like they reject Islam or reject Moorish identity. But, you know, like we got to kind of break out of that. Then we get to understand things in a better context. Naturalization is when people are coming from another country and they want to become natural, natural citizens of this land. So they go through a process called naturalization. And, and so that they can have all of the rights and privileges of the average citizens here. This is why they learn, you know, they take the citizen test, and they have to pass that test, a test that most American citizens won't even have the answers for, you know. But it's important because this is a part of what's been going on really for thousands of years. It's just we're in modern days and times. You know, you couldn't just waltz into ancient Kemet and say, hey, I'm a, a comedic you know, a comedic resident or comedic citizen here, there had to have been requisites of how you became recognized as one of the people of ancient Kemet. I don't care if you were a serf, servant, you were a part of a working class, etc. I'm quite sure there were systems in place. 
So this is all naturalization is in using our modern vernacular. It's people coming from other countries and, uh, you know, becoming false citizens of the native, the, well, the land that they're trying to be, become citizens of. That's basically it. That's basically it. And, and in doing that, um, one of the posts that, that was posted up in that forum, uh, you caught it immediately. And it was the one that said that nationality is still the mm -hmm. main source of self-identity mm -hmm. for the world's population. Why did that particular article stand out to you? And why, why do you think that it's important that we understand that? Again, the name of the article is nationality is still the main source of identity for the world's population. Well, you know, the Moorish saying in an attempt was nationality is the order of the day. And... People don't, like I just mentioned earlier, people believe that the prophet made up nationality for whatever reason. They just think that this is a part of our ideology and they do not understand that this is a broad aspect. You know, the Quran of Mecca says we have made you into nations and tribes so that she may know one another. It wasn't that we just made Adam and Eve and then a bunch of people spread out. In the Quran of Mecca, and I forget the verse off top of the head, it said, we have made you into nations and tribes so that she may know one another and, and not despise each other. This means that, you know, in a, in a strict sense, insofar as we are concerned, nationality, is it plays an important role in how we identify ourselves as people. You got people who are proud Italian-Americans that are here proud Polish Americans, they do parades, they love their American citizenship. At the 2012 Democratic National Convention, there was a vote taken on the floor for a recognition of Israel's platform. I don't know if it has something to do with recognizing God. No, Israel being the capital in Jer Jerusalem or something, I can't remember at the time, and they did a, a, an oral vote. And the crowd was basically saying, no, no, no. And when the camera spanned into the audience, you seen people with T-shirts and signs that they were holding up that said Arab Americans. You see, this is what makes nationality so important because we're identifying first and foremost with the very thing that this, this hangout is about, bloodline. You're identifying with your national descent name. Who are we as a national descent people? Sure, we have subgroups and tribes all over the world, but who are we as a nation of people? There had to be a main nation that we all sprang from some thousands of years ago that's lost to the history records, and I believe this is what the prophet was trying, I believe what he was trying to relate to us. So that article stuck out to me because it's better for me, first and foremost, and I'm not going to put a philosophy behind blackness, it's better for me to identify myself by my national descent name than it is uh, by a socio-political construct. Now, blackness may mean something different to you and your listening audience, and that may be fine, well, and dandy. But in American society, black, just like white, when white was invented on this land or used on this land as a part of the official records in 1681 or shortly thereafter, then it's like, why not use the national descent name of my forefathers like other proud people all over the world do. And that article highlighted 
that particular, you know, sentiment that I feel, that we need to be recognizing ourselves as who we are as a nation of people, period. No, let me, just real quick, I want to add another quick point. Of Ali said this, and this is hard for the listening audience to fathom, and I understand it because it was hard for me to fathom at first. Noble Drew Ali said the Moorish American, which means every last one of us, quote unquote, blacks or African Americans, Negroes, whatever term people feel comfortable with, he said that these people were descendants of the ancient Moabites whom inhabited the northwestern and southwestern shores of Africa. Now, the problem is when we think of Moab, we specifically think of this biblical people, and that's it. When you go into the Black's Law Dictionary and you look up the word nation, one of the requisites in recognizing what a nation is, is that these people have a historic continuity, meaning what? They can trace themselves back through the ages. And I believe that, that's why I said DNA helps. It doesn't overtake just your bloodline lineage of knowing who you are, national descent, but it helps, and, and Gozi's breakdown just helped me better understand that of how, I think he said the E, what was it, E1 or P something that mm -hmm. split the off? E, the E1B1. Uh -huh. Yeah, and these split off, the and then these split off, and these split off. Okay, well, now we're still looking at a, a tree that has many different branches to it, and that Correct. this tree has roots, and I mean, so I think of more broader discussion. That's why I wanted to get in on this particular blog. You know, this is not my area of expertise. Sure. I see you when I knew Ngozi was coming. Mm -hmm. That's <laughs> right. That's right. You know, That's like his expertise. And right. Ngozi used to school me on a lot of this stuff, so mm -hmm. I, it made me interested in it. So, right. yeah, you know, that's that's why that article stuck out. Because mm -hmm. in America, if, if we continue to use names that delude to slavery, we got to look up what the word delude means, you know, it's like delusional, like we're not yeah. black if we look at our skin. Okay, if you want to say some ancestors called themselves black or Kemet me, okay, that's understandable, but in the yeah. greater scheme of things, in American society, what is your national descent? Why do Italian Americans, why have they influenced the books over the years? Why have yeah. Jewish Americans influenced the books over the years? Why have we not? Why were there whites-only signs? Why was, uh, you know, certain GI bills, like that video I posted in the group where Tim Wise was breaking that stuff down, why were right. these things geared towards a certain group? And, and I believe that it was because we had no national pride to look to. We were forced to believe that we were second-class citizens. We were forced to believe that the three-fifths cause made us three-fifths of a human being, but that's not what the cause said at all. We were forced to believe that the 14th Amendment somehow gave us citizenship when that's not what it did. It reinforced to the South a reminder what Justice McLean and Justice Curtis said in their dissent to Justice Taney or Taney in the Dred Scott decision, that these people that are called Negroes, they in five states were free when the Articles of Confederation was voted on. As a matter of fact, their votes help propel the Articles of Confederation to become an actual document and law of the land. I believe all of these conversations are important if we if we mingle them. So now we're not just talking about bloodline. How does that affect us in the United States of America? So your question about how that article affected me and why I instantly jumped on it, you know that's the sum of it. 
Absolutely, absolutely. Now, in doing that, and understanding the fact that nationality is so very important, and touching on the aspect of the, of the plantation that I went to, it was called the Whitney Plantation in um, near New Orleans. Mm. And and while at this plantation this week, I was able to observe, you know, looking on those walls and seeing the different nationalities that were on the wall. Mm. And and one of the nationalities is more, mm. but the other nationalities on that particular wall, it reads as Mandingo, Igbo. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm many various other tribes. The the person who invited me to to visit the plantation is the director of the of the uh, of the, the museum itself. Mm -hmm. he, uh, his name is uh, Abraham Sack. Mm -hmm. And Abraham Sack he's uh, also a professor from Sheikh University in Senegal. Mm -hmm. And I got a chance to uh, from his invitation speak to the owner of the plantation. Mama. Uh, and the museum and um, in sharing his knowledge and information and looking at the wall um, if I would recommend that people get his book this is the book that he wrote Abraham Seth this is the brother right here very very uh, strong brother so I recommend that we get his book but a page on his book right here is um, this is the ambassador to Senegal at the wall and as you're looking at the ambassador of Senegal on the wall he's pointing to different tribes and nationalities on there and that wall is all full of African nationalities that were stripped from the people mm -hmm. when they arrived so this ambassador to Senegal why is it that why is there a disconnect between Moors being able to understand that just as valid as the Moorish nationality is him pointing directly at the Mandingo nationality. No, and, that's and right, right above that is the Moorish nationality. So do you see that as just as valid that West African people mm -hmm. have a right not to be erased also and is highly offensive for someone to say you're a Moor mm -hmm. because that is the philosophy of the more science temple of us all being branches of the Asiatic family but for us to denounce the identity of our tribal identification is something that we hold sacred also so can you see the difference between someone else saying that their nation is Mandingo as opposed to someone else saying that their nation is more both are on the wall no no that's, that's understandable and that's an excellent point as well because it is not our position to say that Mandinka is not Mandinka, that Fulani is not Fulani, that Burkina Faso is not. You know, that's I, the lines get blurred depending on who you talk to. Yes, I do believe that all of those nationalities represent more. This is my personal belief based on my study, but it's not necessarily a belief held by everybody and I don't try to fight people tooth and nail on that particular aspect. I honor the fact that people actually know their national descent. I think our experience as Americans, right, and this is why Islam is so important. There's a book called The Dogs of War. The brother posted a link in one of the groups. I actually have the book. I've never even read it and I asked them, I, well, I read the first couple chapters. I didn't read all of it. And the Christians capture the Moors, right? And they say, 
he came as, he came to me as a more I'll return him to you as a Christian and I think this is the the gray area because we're not getting an understanding of this I, I think Moorish is a better political jurisdiction for the collective of us as a nation especially for those of us here who were stripped of their nationality who can't necessarily trace themselves back directly like we watched Kunta Kinte Kunta was you know, he was letting it be known you are Kizzy I am Kunta and you know your father and your father's name was still like he was keeping that particular bloodline alive for many of us we didn't have that and I think that more which I believe and that you know you've read my theory on the Mount Maru piece I, be, I believe this yes. is my belief that I think it's just an ancient ancient name of course it wasn't spelled M-O-O-R but in no way shape form or fashion do I feel that anybody should you know disconnect themselves from their blood their particular national descent bloodline or anything of that nature you know those real quick I have a sister where I work at she's Senegalese she speaks Wolof and French I was showing her my piece the one I, I uh, wrote on the NAR and I was yeah, showing her the two breakdowns of of NAR and Amit. Well, she broke it down to me. She said, she said, that's interesting. We view the NAR as a separate people who come from Mauritania. I said, oh, wow, really? Mm -hmm. She said, Amit exactly. is more of a pejorative. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember in the paper, I have Amit as well. She uh, said, it's a yes, way, we do. Yes, we she, do. She said, it's a way of saying of Ahmad or Ahmad, which is another name for Muhammad. So it's like a pejorative in wall of like, oh, he's an Amit. You know what I'm saying? Like that's mm -hmm. one of the Mohammedan type, even though they also are predominantly Islamic, which really kind of caught my eye that that's correct. being a more also tied into being a Mohammedan. And I believe that right. these are some or of the Arabic great speaking. Yeah, basic. That's right. That's mm -hmm. that is exactly correct. And I mm -hmm. think these are some of the gray areas that haven't really necessarily been broached. By, by many of us. You know, I'm trying to still figure some of this stuff out and, and put those pieces together. But I, I wouldn't want nobody to think that, you know, by saying we're all Moors, I'm trying to erase the bloodline name of, you know, like you pointed out, the Senegalese ambassador pointing to the different nations there. No, not in any way, shape, form, or fashion. And, and I think that's very important to hear someone that's within the fabric of the Moor Science Temple for the public to hear that because mm -hmm. I think that they get confrontational of thinking you're trying to make me delete my tribal identification no when all if you look through the records mm -hmm. of the slavery all of the different uh, factions are there mm -hmm. so we should study deeper as, as the masses of the people we should study uh, the the I think there's a video out on the prince the prince of slaves Right, mm -hmm, the prince among mm -hmm. slaves, or the prince mm -hmm, of slaves, mm -hmm. which deals with uh, uh, Abdul Rahman. That's right, uh, Abraham. Mm -hmm. And if they study Abdul Rahman Abraham, they'll see that he was born of the Fulani. Mm -hmm. And him being born of the Fulani, he was uh, captured and he was enslaved. And as he was captured and enslaved, he called himself the prince. And then the other slaves knew that he was of a royal, a royal bloodline, and mm. they nicknamed him the Prince. So even in the context of slavery, 
he was recognized as coming from a royal bloodline, but his tribal affiliation was Fulani. When he needed to get his freedom, he then implemented the um, he implemented the Moorish Treaty. He fell under the jurisdiction. He used the jurisdiction of the Moorish Treaty in order to free himself. So when it was expedient for him to get his freedom, he then went and uh, embraced his Moorish identity. And that's what freed him from the condition of slavery, although he was Fulani. I think that our people should also understand that there has been rulers of Morocco, and one of the rulers of Morocco was of Mandingo origin. So people don't know that. They think that maybe the Moors all came, you know, some pale Arabs or something like that. But you've actually had rulers of Morocco that were of Mandingo origins. So I think that these are very important things to understand that the term Moor can be very specific in its tribal application or it can be used in a broad sense of those who speak Arabic, those of a particular bloodline, and time and context in order to apply the word more, not negating whatsoever your African tribal identification, whether it's Fulani, whether it's you know Mandingo or anything else. So you can be more than one. You can be African and you can be more. And that's the separation that people, they put up barriers based on either ignorance or emotion, and they're not receptive to the actual truth. And that's the actual truth. To be a more does not mean that you're putting away anything. And you sound really elementary and foolish when you say the big bad Moors did this over here, and you're just cherry-picking the African tribes that were doing the same exact things because they were all branches of the same thing. They were all doing the same exact thing. You had African tribes. Again, if you study the Bach Treaty, B-A-Q-T, the Bach Treaty was before the Moors ever even went into Spain. And that was Nubians selling Nubians into slavery. So, and that lasted for over 600 years. So that was before the Moors went into Spain. That was in the 600s, about 690. The Moors didn't go into Spain until 711. And then you had African tribes that did it after that were selling Africans into slavery. But yet you pick on the big bad Moors. So you ignore the African tribes that did it before, you ignore the African tribes that did it after, but then you blame it on the fast heads and you say, look at them over there. Those big bad Moors are the fault of it. <laughs> you, can't, you can't cherry pick like that. So you have to acknowledge the Bach Treaty, and you have to acknowledge the African tribes that did it after. You have to ignore, you have to, you have to also acknowledge the Moors that were complicit into it, and you have to acknowledge the Moors that were sold into slavery also. Because the facts are all there. There were Moors that were sold into slavery. So there's a broad, complex level of the slave trade and the identity of where we are here in America. And we're all in the same condition and we're all fighting to change our conditions. And that should always be acknowledged in a responsible, non emotional way if you're dealing with it scholastically. I think that's very, very important. Indeed, indeed. You know, Professor Rudolph Ware out of the University of Michigan, he did an important lecture at the, at the Schomburg. And he wrote a book called The Walking Quran. And, you know, the interviewer was asking him about Islam being coterminous 
with slavery. And man, Professor Weir's breakdown. I mean, it was just, oh, he decimated that aspect. And he really showed using the ancient African records, and particularly the West African records, how, I mean, these walking Qurans were like the targets of the slave trade. They were the ones that were targeted. These were the ones that kept records. They were literate. These were the people you needed to keep over your uh, plantations, if you will. I call them slave labor camps now. I don't use the term plantation. <laughs> over your, your slave labor camps. And I went to the University of Georgia a few years back, and I read the records of one of the enslaved Moors named Bilal, or Bilal. Some people believe he's the makeup of the Uncle Ben character because he was proficient at rice farming, etc. He wrote this little booklet that contained a lot of Quranic verses, and that that little leather-bound booklet is, you know, is still. I went and touched it, and I sat there and I read a lot of the commentary, and it's amazing when I compared that with what Professor Ware was breaking down in his lecture. He went and lived in West Africa for over a year. He did like real field anthropo anthropological research and his finds were stunning and I, I urge everybody to seek out that lecture. Hit me in the inbox if you want to listen to it because it undresses a lot of the myths. What we need to understand is that there was a trade going on and men were trading other men all over. The guy, Bilali, that I, whose records I went to see, he was captured by a non-Muslim group, but guess what? He was a Muslim that was in a group that was going to capture non-Muslim groups. They were all doing the same That's exact right. thing. You know what I'm saying? That, so that it's correct. important that the facts come out, and because the, oh, the Moors sold our people into slavery, and then I say, okay, well, what about the Bani? You know, non-Islamic tribe that sold three million of our people to the Europeans and you know and, oh well you know there were tribal wars going on but you dreaded wars with those feathers on oh no you are the <laughs> that's crazy <laughs> right right and 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 when you when you do study Bilal and his writings did you catch that five-pointed star in there um I don't I got the pictures I, it's been so long since oh. I've even looked at that stuff yeah, no. yeah a, a lot of people think that you know that the five-pointed star is something that's new but that's actually that's actually a seal that was used by Moors. Oh yeah, study uh, Uncle Moro, Uncle Moro in South Carolina in mm. his writings. He puts a five-pointed star on there, and this is back in like the you know 1800s and stuff like oh, that. Oh wow, very very important. I got the, I got I'll post a picture up on it um in in, in the in the forum. Oh definitely definitely. Uh, we have um Moors. Uh, um, and please, everyone else, please feel free to chime in at any time. It's very free-flowing and very organic in this conversation. We want to make sure that we uh, make sure that you're all invited to be included. So if you have any questions, if you'd like to just share and impart knowledge, please feel free to, to come in and join us. Um, you have Moors that claim uh, Native American identity. What are some of the different Moors or some of the different aspects of Moors that claim, why do they claim Native American identity. I think some some of them are claiming Native American identity based upon um, coming from the southeast mostly, come from the south or the southeast. There was a heavy mixture of Africans and uh, Native American mixtures. 
So again, acknowledging their ancestors, uh, a lot of us have have tribal uh, mixing. If you live here in America and you're African in the Southeast from that origin, it's actually quite likely that you're going to have some branch of either Cherokee or Creek or, or Chickasaw or Choctaw or, or Seminole. You're going to have a mixture of one of those particular tribes somewhere in your family. It's not uncommon, I'll say. But why do you think that there's so many people that uh, claim Native American identity? Uh, would anyone like to chime in on that? And also, uh, Brother Abba, but, uh, would anyone like to chime in on why they claim their Native do you do you acknowledge your Native American identity? I know Brother Jeremiah, um, that, that's aspects of your family. Um, why do you think right, that so many right. people do that, Brother? Can you share that? Well, um, I'm not too sh Um, hello? Right, um, I'm not really sure about um, the Moors exactly, but um, I know people in the South claim it. Um, I believe a lot of us in the South... Um, claim it out of ignorance you know um, it's kind of passed down you know not really knowing exactly what tribe you come from um, just Seminole you know I'm Cherokee I'm Seminole it was kind of a fad you know um, but my family in particular um, comes from South America you know um, my uh, grandmother is uh, Spanish and my mother is Spanish um and my ancestors um um started a reservation i would say um or somehow the government got involved they started a reservation in Okeechobee Florida and those people that are on the reservation in Okeechobee Florida are descendants from a tribe in South America mm -hmm. and it was documented you know um the only African slave within our genealogy um, is a slave from Chad. Is a slave from the African country known as Chad. That's the only African lineage that we have in our family, to our knowledge. Um, so, how does that play into the um, into the Moorish African? History, like how does that, how was that involved if a group of dark-skinned peoples from the from South America claim Native American ancestry, but also African? Like, how was that? I think that I think that's a very valid question that that you ask, and I think that it takes studying. If you study a lot of the uh, the people, maybe from the the indigenous people from Alabama. Um, part of uh, Georgia, Louisiana, Florida. Um, in anthropology, they call them the Lamar people, L-A-M-A-R, the Lamar people. Um, it's also a branch of what they call the Mississippian culture, and that Mississippian culture is a branch of South America. In studying the Mississippian culture, what you will find is um, you will find one of, like for instance, one of the great chiefs. His name is Tuscaloosa. Mm -hmm. Tuscaloosa, as in you know, named after Alabama, the different mounds in that area. Again, a branch of the Mississippian culture. Right. Uh, Tuscaloosa means black warrior. Right. That's actually what the name means, and he was known to be uh, about seven foot tall, 
uh, a tad darker than myself. Okay. And, and a great ruler of this particular area, of of uh, the Choctaw area, um, the Mobile area. Right. right. Um, so th those tribal affiliations are very uh, rich. Um, and I would definitely say study Chief Tuscaloosa and those particular tribes, um, the, Tuskegee, okay. the, the Tuskegee tribes. Okay. Uh, my ancestor, uh, Silas Jefferson, he was a well-known uh, chief in Oklahoma. He comes from our lands in Alabama. Um, he's my complexion. He looks exactly like me, but he was a well-known uh, Creek, Muscogee Creek chief. And Is this pre-slave trade? This was uh he was a chief in the 1800s. So this okay. was uh this was when this was after the Trail of Tears. Our particular family got broken up during the Trail of Tears. I come from a branch that stayed in Alabama, which is where we still have our land at. We still own our land that was signed from the government. And the right. Bureau of Indian the Bureau of Indian Affairs acknowledged 13 families that stayed and did not walk the Trail of Tears. We were we were family number three. We were the right. Hollinger family. So we own Hollinger land in Alabama. Another branch of the Hollinger family or the descendants went out to to Oklahoma. So if you look on my Facebook page, you'll see the older picture of the brother. A lot of people say I kind of favor him, um, but he's he's my ancestor. And uh, but he's he's you know he's Muscogee Creek. So we're African Muscogee Creek. So there's a mixture of that, but you just have naturally uh, people, like I said, like like Tuscaloosa, who are very, very dark and very, right. very indigenous. Right. It's just a branch of our, you know, for Snoop Dogg to be to still maintain, I think like 27% Native American. That's amazing. It normally takes a right. very controlled environment in order to maintain that much DNA, and for him not to right. be. Uh, raised on a reservation and to be intermarried that way, for him to still be able to maintain twenty something percent, twenty seven percent of Native American, that's amazing, you know. But it doesn't. Right. That's just that's just by by grace that he's able to maintain that much DNA. A person would be lucky if they were to maintain one percent of DNA today, because it's very easy. Native American uh, DNA is very recent as far as how it is on the strands, on the DNA strands. We've been here long enough. They're not an ancient enough people as far as mixing with us to be identifiable. So it's very easy to get weeded out. You know, I have about 1.4% of Native American in me, but I was fortunate enough to have a very solid um, genealogy to identify who they were. And, and, we, and also we own the land. By us owning the land, we always wondered how are we able to own these hundreds of acres of land tax-free. So once right. we went through the records and see that the president had deeded it to us, that's right. an indication of, okay, this is obviously not a normal family. What was the story behind why this land is so old and in our family? So right. identifying that, you know, if I only have 1.4% and, you know, my wife is, is part Mexican, she's half Mexican, she's like 29 or like 30%. So that means that my children are now like 32% or 31%. That doesn't right. negate the fact that I'm their parent. It just means that that mixture tied them back into the land to them being 30-something percent. 
You know what I'm saying? So right. it, it, it's, it, but it can be weeded out just as easy. You know, it again wouldn't negate the fact that dad has Native American in him, but just as easily that Native American could have been wiped out depending on who a person marries or, you know, so it's just very, very, DNA is very, very fascinating and something that we should definitely study. Um, brother Amir, you had you had something to say, Brother Ngozi? Yeah, 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 I'm glad, yeah, um, I had, my phone dropped, I had to charge it up, but I was going to say, um, that brother who's speaking, I see him a lot mm -hmm. in the group, um, your Hauser, your, your ancestor that was from Chad was a Hauser. The Hauser people are very important, and they were also considered Moors because they were African Muslims. They speak Chadic language, which is the Hausa language, which is part of the Afro-Asiatic language family, but they live in Chad. So that's a very important lineage that you have on your African side. As far as the types of people that was over here, prior before Africans, because a lot of Africans, after the transatlantic slave trade, a lot of them ran away and joined Native American tribes. So, um, I'm the music. Oh. I would say a lot of them joined Native American tribes. A lot of Africans that came over here after slavery. A lot of Africans escaped, and a lot of them joined a few Native American tribes. The only two types of people that was over here before Africans were Paleo-Mongoloids or Proto-Mongols, who are brown-skinned. These are the people that are the predecessors of the modern Neo-Mongoloid family that we see in Japan, China, and modern-day Mongolia. But you have Proto-Mongols or Paleo-Mongols that lived on the Bering Strait that were brown-skinned. And then you had another group of people that lived over here before them, the Australoids or Australasians. Austral means Southeast Asians. The same people that you found in Australia and Mel uh, Melanesia and Papua New Guinea. These type of people who came through the Americas before the Paleo-Mongoloids or the um, Proto-Mongoloids. So you see these two types of people here. Um, in Alaska, we know them as the Anuts or Eskimo. And as they kept going further south, it got hotter. So the further south they kept going, the less clothes they had to wear. So they go through Alaska, they go through Canada, they go through Minnesota, they go through Dakota. They go all the way down through Virginia and all these other places until they end up in South America and Central America. But they was following the same routes that the first indigenous pop population, the Australasians took, which were darker skinned people. They were taking those same routes and they end up in Brazil. And this is where you find a skull Luzia at. Luzia, her skull was classified as Negroid, but when they was able to measure some of the soft tissues of the DNA that still exists or abstracted, she was classified as Australoid or Australasian. And we have to understand that our Australoid brothers are the first out of African migrationists who was able to maintain their original features, who was able to maintain their original skin tone. Melanin is, drove, is driven by an amino acid called tyrosine. Tyrosine is what allows us to have our melanocytes that we know as melanin to maintain darker skin living in equatorial zones, like zone one. People that live in those zones are able to maintain those features. People living in zone two tend to become the more Cambodian-looking Asians. People living in zone three and further Arctic um, Europe, even with that, it really doesn't make your skin pale the way they used to think. The skin pale mutation is something that's fairly recent, around eight to 6,000 years old, due to a mutation that happens with the depletion of the 11 amino acid, which causes something called SLC2485. It allows the melanin to become spuric which makes it a cell away from albinism but not albinism. So what I'm saying is that a lot of the original natives were of darker hue and a lot of Africans joined Native American tribes and amalgamated amongst them. Because we got to understand, a lot of these people, it, America really wasn't overly populated like Africa or like Asia. A lot of these people lived on certain on, on, on coastal lines. Even when you get into Central and South America and you study the ancient Mayans and the ancient Aztecs, there wasn't an over-large population like we think. 
This is why the European was able to come over here and wipe them out with diseases that their bodies was immune to and with weapons. And that's why you don't really find a Y chromosome to the Arawak Indians. And as, as Brother Ish said, you know, the, the DNA could be weeded out. Not to mention it's a probability or a chance that Africans with E1B1A, that me and everybody on this line possibly have, came over here prior before we were brought over here as slaves. If we want to talk about Massa Musa brother who came over here, if the myth is true. So a lot of African Americans with E1B1A is not over here because you was a slave. You might got E1B1A because you probably come from those first people that came over here that met up with the Paleo-Mongoloids and the Australoid groups and amalgamated amongst the tribes. I think it's also important to, to understand that when you study um, those who came over in the 1500s, uh, for example, like Esteban, uh, Esteban the Moor, who was the founder of New Mexico, he lived amongst the Native Americans, although he came over with the Spaniards, the person who he came over indentured to passed away. So when he died, Esteban was then free, but he was born in Morocco. And again, he found New Mexico. He went through other branches of Mexico itself, and he lived among the Zumi tribe, and he had children. You know, he, he was adopted by the tribe. So there were a lot of African people who would come over, and not a lot of African people, but there are many different branches of these African descendants that came in and mixed among indigenous populations that didn't come in as a disruptive force. You know, a lot of the destruction came because a lot of them um, had to had to had to uh, with Africans in order to fight off diseases. A lot of the Native Americans, by being wiped out with diseases, realized that they were able to uh, save their families because there was an immunity by the Africans by the diseases that the Europeans brought over. So you have a lot of the mixtures that were taking place that way. You also have Africans that came over with DeSoto through uh, Florida and Alabama and Georgia during his track, and some of them straight left. <laughs> you know, They left once DeSoto got here uh, out of Florida, and they went again to go and live amongst the Native American people. And this is in the 1500s. This is over 100 years before Jamestown and the Virginia story. So the African presence, like Brother Ngozi said, in, uh, people can be branches of those Africans also, and the ones that trickled in either independently or through other ways that we don't even know about. So there are various ways that we actually got here. Um, two days ago, um, on Friday, um, there was another discovery that says, uh, the article says, remarkable evidence of ancient humans found under the Florida River. And the article briefly says that researchers who dove hundreds of times into a, sinkable, uh, a sinkhole beneath the brown murky waters of Florida have retrieved some of the oldest evidence of human presence in the Americas, including stone tools apparently used to butcher a mastodon. So this is human beings around when the Macedons were around. Um, so it says, scientists said on Friday the tools, animal bones, and Macedon tusks found at the site showed that people already had occupied the American Southeast by 14,550 years ago, about 1,500 years earlier than previously known. So this particular sinkhole was up near North Florida, and uh, it uh, this was when that particular part of the land, because Florida used to have more uh, land before it went underwater. 
um, so they're finding evidence of of human beings that were here. Um, you know, at, they're just pushing back the time scale. So our our story, our story, and our timelines, science is ever revealing, and in doing that, that's something that we're studying and finding out that things, you know, things are being readjusted. Again, this find just came out on Friday. So that's why we try to do the most up-to-date information um, in the in the forum because the information is something that's new and it's something that we were able to study and we have the minds that can analyze the scientific studies and then uh, give it to our people in a responsible way. I think it's great to be a part of Amara Squad knowing that there are minds of people who can decipher things like languages and decipher things like the written metamater. Uh, and uh, be able to say, you know what, we don't have to take someone else's word for it. We can analyze our own DNA, our own findings, and we can draw our conclusions, not having to be dependent upon someone else. Um, yeah, one of the branches uh, are the Washita's. How valid is the Washita Moore story? The Washita's say that their origin is from the land of Mu, and that they are recognized as the oldest indigenous people on the planet Earth. And, um, you know, they use as evidence a uh, Pinnacle Point, which is in Louisiana. Um, how valid are is, is the story of the, the Washita Moors? Would anyone like to, to deal with that particular topic? I, I would like to chime in. It's long. Uh, you know, I've... Of course, you come into the Moorish movement and you run into a lot of different groups of Moors before you finally wind up in the Moorish Science Temple of America. <laughs> it's just basically just how it goes. It's like, all right, all this stuff starting to sound weird to my logical senses. Let me see what Noble Drew Ali was talking about. Okay, this makes sense. Right. But the Washita, and I don't have a detailed breakdown of the Washita other than their empress, you know, certain court cases that they make a claim that they own a certain amount of land through the Turners. Uh, I believe Tunicas is, is one of them. I believe Brother Lasana Tunica L can speak more in depth to that particular aspect of it. But when I look at the claims of the Washita, it's as if there's some legitimacy to what they're saying, but they're trying to meld in aspects that are not historical, if you will. They're ahistorical. Now, the whole move theory, look, I believe in the, that there was a lost continent called Atlantis. As far as the move theory, I don't, I don't, I'm not beholden to that. It was something that was coined in the 1800s by a British, I believe the title was Bibliographer or something like that, and he noticed that there were lemurs on Madagascar, and there were lemurs on, on Australia, but there were none in Africa. So he posited this theory that there had to have been a continent where these uh, animals crossed, being that we find them here, we find them there, but we don't find them. In Africa, and he said, we'll call it Lemuria. And from Lemuria, you get, get moved, basically. I, I don't buy that aspect of 
That's, and that's just me. I don't, there's just not enough. With the Atlantis piece, I can go back into some of the Greek records, Plato's own records, and, and some have disputed these things, but a lot of this stuff is ancient history. The Greek, uh, what was he, poet Salome spoke about what the elders said to him about, you know, this people that was way older than even the Egyptian king list has shown us. And so, um, you know, their claims, the Washita claim, I'm like, okay, where can I find Washita in the record? And they show me like Uchida or something like that. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And they're translating that as Washita. I have not seen enough physical evidence to say for surety like the Yamasi. I can look into the historical records of the quote-unquote Negro Wars, and I can see that in Florida there was a tribe of quote-unquote Negroes as called by the Europeans that were called the Yamasi. I can see that, you know, I can see that in the historical record. But as far as the Washita is concerned, there's so many different vagaries within their accounts. Then you couple that with the fact that they mixed a lot of sovereignty information in their whole demonstration dealing with license plates and calling themselves El Bays and it you know it taints the if they have any historical validity it sort of taints it and it makes people look at it and say oh that's just pseudo you know you can't just have one kernel of truth and a bunch of pseudo and call all of it the truth you're going to call all of it pseudo you you could look at a kernel of falsehood surrounded by a bunch of truth and point that falsehood out and say, nah, that right there is false, brother. That's false. Everything else you said is right and exact and on point. But you can't do that when you have a bunch of falsehood surround like so I'm really not clear on the Washita claims insofar as direct anthropological uh, archaeological evidence is concerned. You know, show me some bones and things of that nature as well to back up your claims about being the oldest indigenous people in the United States of America. Give me something more that dates back and antecedents to, you know, okay, the, the early mound builders. One of the things Noble Drali was quoted as saying was the Moors lived up and down the Mississippi River. Okay, well, you know, was that the Washita? Who knows? It could have been any group of people under any name. The prophet used more in a general sense as well, in the same way that I do. So, you know, I just wanted to chime in on that aspect of it. I wish somebody was here to actually give a more detailed breakdown, but I just wanted to share from my experience that I've never seen enough from the Washita group other than conflated claims about the empress being Noble Drawley's cousin and they took some court cases of John Quitman. I had to break that stuff down. Ali Muhammad made the claim. And uh, Eliza, what was her name? Eliza Brown or Eliza something. They tried. I just had to like dissect that whole thing and show that, okay, based on what y'all say in the Washington is, it's not right and exact. It's not right and exact at all. So I just wanted to chime in with, with, with my two cents in that regard. Yes, yes. Does anyone else have any, any opinions of maybe have studied it at all or maybe could add some clarity on, on the Washington Moore's claims? No, well, um, it seems... Mm -hmm. 
Um, I was going to say that um, it seems as though they have good intentions. You know, it seems as though they they gathered um, some information and they want to do something productive with it. Um, I think they've gone about it the wrong way, um, you know, by trespassing onto people's property, claiming ownership. You know, I feel like that gives you a bad look, you know, that can give you a bad reputation. And it's kind of it's kind of renegade. Um, so I think if they um, establish themselves in a more organized fashion, I believe that, you know, they would have the respect that they seek. Um, I believe that they can find the independency and the sovereignty that they seek in a sense. But um, it seems to me that it's more of a cult than anything. You know, it seems as though you have a group of people who want to go somewhere in life, but they aren't doing it the right way. Um, that's all I really have to say about that. Yes, sir. Thank you so much. Brother Mayor, Brother Ngozi, you have something to say on that? We're going to share something? Not really. I, I, you know, I, from my research, I don't know how valid the Washita's are or, or who they were really, so I, I don't really want to speak on it. But, I, you know, I did want to say not to get off the subject, but I'm, I'm going to wait. But I wanted to talk about the importance of us understanding the Moorish history. The best part of Moorish history is in Africa. And when I hear about Washita's and all these other native tribes, for some, for, for, for me, some of these people that talk on it are anti-African. They have an issue with being African. They want to be from the Americas. They want to be from South America. They have an issue with Africa. You know, I always heard you break it down it's since day one. You talked about your Native American ancestry, and you always made sure that you put your African heritage in it. You talked about your African ancestors who were part of this tribe or, or, or was this tribe. You don't denounce Africa. A lot of people that talk about Washita's that I hear, they anti-Africa, but they Moors. But the best Moors history is in Africa. Noble Drew Ali didn't even denounce Africa. For people that say, like, you got Washita's that say they support Noble Drew Ali, but Noble Drew Ali, didn't, he didn't denounce Africa. He was one of, the, one, of the more, one of the first people to talk about Africa or Mexium and um, Northwest and Southwest Facts. Northwest and Southwest of Mexium. You know, he talked about the importance of Africa. But you got these other people who say that they certain types of native tribes who only say that to denounce their African ancestry. They don't want to have nothing to do with Africa. So for me, I think that some of it comes out of self-hate. Seriously. I, I thank both of you. And what, what my take on the, on the Washington family, and I do consider them family, um, I think what they've done is they've weaved together a, a, a theology to fit uh, a history that they're trying to still piece together. Um, so I, I think that if you're claiming that your origin is from the land of Mu, I think that you're trying to take people's eyes off of Africa, and I think that needs to be denounced in any and every shape and form. No one should be able to try to steal the identity of the origin of life, and that's from Africa. So if you're trying to convince me that your origin is from some mythical land that's under the water, I'm going to tell you that that's 100% false. And again, just like I had the Church Ward family denounce Ali Muhammad and his claims of Mu, I went to the Church Ward family and demanded that they also make a specific video denouncing the Washita Moors and that claim. Because it was the Washita Moors that were using the Church Ward family maps. 
and saying that they came from the land of Mu. And I would like to commend the Church Ward family for producing those videos, uh, denouncing the Ouachita Nation, and saying that Africa was the origin, and that they absolutely had no rights, and it's definitely false for the Washita's to be claiming that Mu is their origin. So I, I thank the Church Ward family for doing that on behalf of just trying to make the history right for our people. I stand behind my denouncement of that to the Washita Moors. I stand behind that. I stand firmly on the fact that Africa is the origin of all life as far as for human beings and that um, that's unwavering. So I stand behind uh, the demand of the Churchward family to do that. I still look at the Washita family of Moors as a branch of my family. I disagree with that part of their theology. And the rest of the part of their theology, I, actually, I won't have any, any fault in it because I think that every particular nation should have a particular belief system. I'm, I'm, I'm a person who respects people's beliefs as long as it's not in conflict with the truth to the level that it's offensive to me and what I represent. So for the most part, I will definitely always see them as family. I will embrace them as family, as a family of Moors. But if you come to me sideways, trying to tell me that Africa is not the origin of all life, I'm going to bang on you, unequivocally. So that's my take on it. Can I, can I just say something real quick, brother? Certainly, brother, of course. Because I think people... People get it confused when we speak about the Canaanites inhabiting Africa. The key word there is inhabit. You know, there's nowhere where Prophet Noble Drew Ali says that there's nowhere where Prophet Noble Drew Ali says that there weren't people on the continent. He just said that old man Cush and his father Ham were the first inhabitants of Africa. Then Ham, like I think, and and this is something that I you know, as I grew, and we have to understand and define every single word. So I said, let me look at this word inhabit, which basically means to colonize, you know, another place. And mm -hmm. this is what I believe Prophet Noble Drew Ali is saying. You know, we, we look at the out, the out of Africa theory, mm -hmm. and we asked Marnichi, when we had her on the show, I believe Brother Tunica L. asked, Oh, this debate, did people leave out of Africa and come back in? Just or like start on Africa, or did people just come from outside of Africa? And she's you know honest opinions is said, you know, I just don't know. You know, I don't think clear that fact up that the prophet is saying that the first colonizers of Africa definition of inhabit is you know, he's called the Kushite people. Then he's saying the, I guess, the father generation of the Kushites. And I look at these names, Kush and Ham, even though we find them in the historical record, we can't discount the biblical narrative as not being historical. I call it twistery. Don't get it twisted up some actual history. But a lot of ancient names are preserved in that book and bloodline. We look at Ham and Kush, we look at Hamitic language, and we look, and I believe that a people speaking what is an Afro-Asiatic Cushitic language is, is what, this is my belief, 
is what Prophet Noble Drew Ali is referencing when he says these are the first inhabitants, meaning the first people to come into Africa. Who knows how many thousands of years ago because he didn't specify that. So I kind of wanted to clear the air on that because you have people that say, oh, the Moors say that, you know, life started in Canaan somewhere. And, you know, and me and real quick, me and Gozi spoke about this before as well with the the find, the discovery of the A00 haplogroup group with the brother in South Carolina, which matched up with a small group, I believe that was in Cameroon, that predated the oldest bones by 160,000 years. So, you know, my theory then became, okay, now you have to find bones that's 300,000 years old to match up with this particular haplogroup, which predates the oldest you know, proto—I mean, not proto-human, modern human bones that we find in on the continent today. And, and you know, I think I, I think my theory is valid in that regard. But I, we're not saying that, and Noble Drew Ali is not saying. Let me clear that up. Noble Drew Ali is not saying that life began in the place called Canaan and then inhabited Africa, according to the text. According to the text. So you know, it's a debate in a. A point of contention that could be had, definitely. Pardon the body, Abba. The prophet Noble Jali did, okay, did have some truth to what he said because there was a back migration in Africa. But we have to understand the time period. You had a Natufian population who was responsible for giving the Near East or the Levant area agriculture. The Natufians, who had a specific marker, which is a subclave branch of E1B1B, they leave out, out of the horn or what we through Egypt, or what we know as Egypt today, and they go over there around 15,000 years ago. And a lot of those people, those Natufian descendants, came back in. They were already in Ethiopia or certain parts of what we know as Ethiopia or the Horn of Africa or the heart, or, you know, the north northeastern part of Africa or Ethiopia today that we call Ethiopia today, not the Ethiopia that the Greeks call Sudan, but Al-Habasha or Abyssinia. This part, they were sprouting out, they were going that way, and they left out through Egypt, and they go into the so-called Near East. They were already preserving um, wheat, um, sargon, tusk, and even barley. Barley develops in different areas. You have barley in, uh, in Ethiopia. You have barley domestication in Upper Egypt. And you also have barley in, over there in the Levant, near Lebanon. So the Natufians, and my reference is through Black Athena, and also through Spencer Wells, the geneticist who talked about them, had a specific marker. They were E3B. And it was these people that spoke Nostratic languages, which is a cl cousin clad or a sister clad to Proto-Omotic which is the grandmother of Afro-Asiatic, which is Eastern African language. They're developing an Erythrean area, Proto-Omotic language family. This is all within Africa. So some of these people leave out, they go into the Near East, and a few of them come back, and they start to create established Afro-Asiatic languages. But the origin of Afro-Asiatic, the language family itself, starts right there in that Erythrean area, according to um, um, Soe Kiata and your boy, um, not Greenberg, but the guy after that, um, it was Greenberg and another and another scholar. Um, I, I, his name is not coming to my head right now, but he's a linguist. But what I'm saying is that the origin of the the language of Afroasiatic, you know, it starts in Africa, goes into the Near East, and it does come back. This is why Ethiopians speak Amharic. Amharic is a crossbreed between Cushitic and and, and so-called Semitic. They came from Saba or Yemen. When a few people from Yemen came back in, and these Yemenese people that came back in with the Mahari people. And the Mahari people are dark-skinned, Semitic-speaking people. 
and they still live in Yemen to this day. And they come back in, establish Damat in 800 BC, and after Damat collapse, they form Aksum. And they speak Ethiosemitic, Ethio which is classified as Amharic, and we know them as the Habasha speakers in northern Ethiopia. Cushitic languages, according to Greenberg, is classified as Somali, Oromo, Bija, Afar, and all these other languages. Greenberg said that Hermetic languages is Amazigh, which is the Berber language. Amazigh or the Berber language is classified as Hermetic languages. If we based it off bibliography of what Greenberg was doing, Greenberg was a Jew who practiced ling. He was a linguist and he was a Jew. He was a linguist, linguist who practiced the religion Judaism. So we only label the things based off how he understood bibliography and also how he understood his um. The, the scientific things that he developed, that he's seen with syntax and context, or prefix and syntax when it comes to language. So um, there was a back migration of people that came back into Africa and came together with the indigenous populations that was there. And we also have to understand this father word, because when the Hyksos came into Egypt at 1600 BC, and when a few Nubians was trying to combine with them against the Egyptians, you got the Hikso king talking to a brother named Nahisi, Kush means lowland of south calling him son. Like, oh, my son, are you going to come north to help me destroy the Egyptians? So we got to be careful with, you know, father and son and different things because some people can come in and father a group of people that's already there by showing them certain things. At that time period, they did that. So, yes, it was a back migration. And um, I meant to tell you, too, the good news about that 800 marker, which is an archaic marker for archaic humans. They found a skull in Morocco, which goes back 300,000 years, that's older than Omo Man 1, and Omo Man to Ethiopia. And the skull is 300,000 years old. So look up human skull 300,000 years in Morocco. They call it almost human. He was archaic, but it shows that you had archaic human populations living up there. Archaic means oldest or, or, or older, or eldest or older in science. So check that out. 300,000 year old oh, skull gosh. in Morocco. I also right, to Let me you ask you a question. Mm -hmm. Oh, go ahead, brother. Go ahead, brother. I'll go ask your question, bro. Oh, yeah. I wanted to ask you about the uh, brother Ngozi. I wanted to ask you, I've been doing some research into the ancient Babylonians, like the because according to many early scholars, the Babylonians are a brother branch of the Egyptians. You know, it's like, okay, you have him, and on this side of the tree, there's the Egyptians, and on this side of the tree, there is the Babylonians, Chaldeans, or whatever term we want to use. But I, like, what is your breakdown on the original docs, like the people that look like us in, but, in, in well, Babylon? Because look, real quick, in, in a lot of the Christian records, right, in medieval times, the Moors are not just being called Moors, Moabites, Saracens, or Berbers, or Barbarians. They're also being called Chaldeans. Many Christian writers would also call these Moors by the name of Chaldeans. And, you know, I have an interesting theory I'm still kind of piecing together right now. But from your perspective dealing with, you know, linguistic and, and DNA breakdowns, what is your take on that and the dispersal of these particular groups? And where did they actually go? Did they go into Arabia? Did they? Because most of those people are not still in these regions that, you know, that we call Iraq today or even Iran itself. They, they came out of Arabia. You got to understand Mesopotamia and under, we got to follow the trail of the people that were there. You had a, a proto ubanian people 
that was over there, or Proto-Euphrates people that was over there. Then you get the Sumerian type of people that come over there. And then the Sumerians was a crossbreed between a Cushitic stock and a Dravidian stock because they spoke Proto-Tamil. Coin form or cuneiform is actually a, lang a language based off um, trade. It was a coin language to deal with um, goats and grain. If you ever look at Sumerian symbols, you see goat and grain symbols. It was a coin trade language. Now, you had the Sumerians that spoke Proto-Tamil, which was Dravidian type, and you had a Cushitic stock that came over there because of the remnants of the Natupians was going over there a little bit before the Halfling culture. And then you have the Akkadians who developed in the eastern part of the Arabian Peninsula who also were people of darker hue who came in and crushed them. And then you had the Kurds, which is the today's they call the Kurds, but they were called Gutians then, who came from the Taurus and Zogov Mountains, who came in and crushed the Akkadians. Then you after them you have the Amorites who came in and pushed back a lot of the Kurds. And uh, uh, Amorites developed on the western part of the Arabian Peninsula. So the first Babylonians were actually Amorites. They were Amorites that took over their st established Babylon, so Babylon. And they were a darker-skinned people. And the, close, and the closest people that you find that look like them, it's important for us to study an Arabian tribe called the Mahiris. The Mahiri people are darker-skinned people. And these people are old. But a lot of the Nordic Arabs, like the Koresh tribe, and other tribes don't give them credit. Arabia is a funny area. This is a zone of confluence, as Dr. N.T. Jorp or Diop told us. You have these different types of people living over there. You got L4B, which is the daughter of L3. Uh, you see here L4A and L4B living in Yemen. You got L3s over there. You got M1 over there, which is one of the first offshoots daughters of M, which is the first daughter of L3. You got the ROA market that the brother Ish brought up earlier. These are darker-skinned people. M1, M2, M3, M4, M5, M6 is all through Omen. And in India, with our dark-skinned women that live in the Ottoman Islands and the Dravidian people, like the um, the um, the Arula people, you got all these different types of people that's living in this area. And then you get these 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 these. Yeah, you you blanked out, beloved. Or unless that's me. I said, I'm, so, I'm sorry. I said the Phoenicians were actually nothing but Amorites. But we have to understand a time period. This is another name for them. Amorite, I mean Phoenician, all these are different names for them. When you study, the Greeks gave them that name because of the purple ash or something like that. But when you study the, um, when the sea people came in from southern Europe, the same sea people that tried to invade Kemen in the 20th dynasty, if I'm not mistaken, when they got rid of Ramesses III, a lot of the Berbers in the north and sea people came together collectively. But a lot of the sea people were breeding with the people in the Amorites that lived in what we know in today modern-day Palestine or Gaza, or that Gaza Strip, which is Bablos. They were breeding with these people. So when they bred with these people, they, they created the Philistines. The Philistines is where you get the word um, Palestine or Pil Palestine from. Palestine and Philistine is one and the same. So... When you start getting into the Amorites, it's important for us to study the original Amorites and what they look like, and a lot of them look like the Mahiri people. So did the people, the Akkadians that we know of. Amorites and Akkadians were the same type of people living on two different sides of the desert. That's all it was. One lived on the eastern side, the other lived on the western side. When it comes to the Sumerian type of people, they were mostly a Cushitic stock who were breeding with a Dravidian stock because they spoke Proto-Tamil. So it's important for us to study this whole area from the beginning of the Middle East to the Near East which is the Mesopotamian area, before the Indo-European stock started coming in. So yes, the original Babylon 
before the Persians took over, because Persians speak an Indo-European language. It's not Semitic, nor is it part of the Afro-Asiatic family. Before the Persians come in, the original Babylonians were Amorites, a Semitic-speaking people. So, so um, the, the question I was asking earlier, brother, goes before we got cut off, was I was saying that my paternal half of the group, that E one B one A, that was mm -hmm. listed at about twenty thousand years ago, and my maternals right. was that L two D, and that mm -hmm. L two D one was a subgroup of the L two D and branches mm -hmm. of the L one six. That's mm -hmm. listed at at a hundred and twenty thousand. Why is the That's disparity right. so different? Why is one Although they're both in West Africa and different parts of West Africa, why is one twenty thousand and the other one is so much older at hundred and twenty thousand? Why, why why does that because, like that L two? Why is it so so much older? Because because the because mitochondrial DNA, you know, is funny. Mighty, the thing is about DNA. Scientists, Spencer Wells, and a lot of geneticists are starting to come to this conclusion. Women could have became Homo sapiens sapiens first before men, because think about it. A00 was lingering around for a long time. It's 338,000 years old, and they call it our keg marker. But for some reason, we see the mitochondria DNA, which lasts longer because the mitochondria DNA is the powerhouse of the cell. So it's, it can be easily detected and it can be easily deciphered more than a Y chromosome. Y chromosomes yes. can get lost, they can break off and different things. So women could have been, became our species first, but that's, that's neither here nor there. Your marker, you have an old mitochondrial DNA. Your marker is older than mine. I'm L3F1B1. My MT DNA is only 60,000 years old. That marker that you have is old, which goes back to, you know, original humans. E1B1A, which is our subclade branch of EP2, is it's 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 a fairly new marker. It's okay. not even a old, it's not even an old branch of um it's not even an old branch of E. The old branch of E before before we had that was EP2, which goes back 40,000 years. And the oldest branch of E is called EM96, which goes back 50,000 years. Okay. And, we have, and we have to understand that that marker is not the oldest marker when it comes to men. The oldest haplogroup when it comes to homo sapiens sapiens men was A and B. And I'm going to tell you something that's scary about our marker, brother-ish. Mm -hmm. Haplogroup E colonized West Africa. We came from East Africa. We took over West Africa. A lot of the people that lived in West Africa were A markers. That's why A00 was in Cameroon. In Central Africa, that that's an archaic marker. And I was now wondering why that was listed as Northeast and Eastern Africa. Yeah, because we came from, Because if you look up haplogroup E, the oldest, it starts in North Africa, Northeast Africa. We right. come out of that zone, and it's also argument that IE could have started in West Asia, because it mm -hmm. came from that D. It came from that D branch. When mm -hmm. haplogroup CT, they call them Scientific Noah, not Scientific Adam. Scientific Adam is A marker. Scientific mm -hmm. Noah. Which is haplogroup CTM168. When he leaves out of Africa, he got two twins. He got a son around here. That son is classified as DE. And when DE leave out, those dark-skinned men that live in the Adamant Islands in India, they right. have haplogroup D. So does the new people. This is what connects West Africans with these black people or dark-skinned people in Asia through that YAP marker that we talked about in the group, the okay. Yes Associate protein. So right. it's a possibility that the E marker could have came back in from Saudi Arabia. That's what I, that's I heard, I've, I've heard the branches of Yemen and things like that before. I've, I've, I've heard that. In yeah, they were, they, right, right. They were saying it's the E marker, the oldest E, not our branch. Our branch mutated in Africa. Mm -hmm. But the oldest branch of E could have came back in through Yemen. This could have been one of the first back migrations. That's the right. thing about E. And when mm -hmm. E, But I do know for a fact that E started somewhere in the East. In East Africa, 
And when E1B1 A came from East Africa, we went into West Africa, and we kind of conquered all those A and B markers, and we started breeding with their women, the L1s that was already lingering in those parts of the forest before we got there. Right, right, right. Oh, wow, that's fascinating. That's deep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, yeah. So yeah, that's why E markers, think about it, brother. That's why Ramesses third. He mm -hmm. had the same market that me and you got. E one B one A. Yes, that's Ramesses exactly, exactly. <laughs> he, had the, he had the same market that we got, but mm -hmm. when you look at him and then look at his depictions, just because somebody looks a certain way now does not mean that that's what the original founders of our lineage looked like. When you breed, right. when you breed with women for thousands and thousands of years, you can come out looking different. You got African Americans walking around here with haploid group R one B from mm -hmm. British men from the slave trade, and they've been breeding with dark skinned women for so long for four hundred years. Autosomally, they look predominantly African, but their main line of their sex chromosome go back to Britain. Oh, that's gangster! Wow, that's so, deep. That's deep. So, so that, so that, so that E marker colonized the rainforests of West Africa. We came from East Africa, mm -hmm. and we went through East Africa. We went through North Africa and Kemet, and then from that area, we went into North Africa, Algeria. To that's why we have to study that Sicily cave art when 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 the Sahara was Greenland, and when it was Greenland. Right. You know, you got all that art of these people up there, and then it dried out. This is when you get into the Mendel Glacier period, 22,000 years ago. Then we, a lot of us went into the rainforest. And then in 10,000 years ago, in the Hellocene Glacier period, this is when you start to find the Kepians and the Teherians that lived in the Sahara. You know, and then you start to find all this Tassili cave art. And then you go back into Egypt, and they discovered the, um, the Jebel Sahaba grave. And they talked about this so-called ancient race war. But it wasn't a race war. It was a it was a battle between um, they tried to call one group of these men um, African Levantine Europeans, but they they wasn't that. You had one group of Africans that had aquiline features that looked like Fulani or that looked like right. Somalians. Somalis, who was, right, who, right. Who who were battling against our brothers who had pronatistic features, but they were the same people. Can't look at right. features. Features does not make you different. That's the bull crap. Mm -hmm. And 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 I would recommend that um, our viewers that they they look up the the. The, the documentary on the black mummies, uh, the black, I think the black boy and, mummy. And, and, so, and southern Libya. His Y right. chromosome was E1B1A, and he was a proto-Fulani. Mm -hmm. He was E1B1A. When they tested his DNA, they looked at the skull, they classified right. him, and he lived in southern Libya. And in Libya, the Egyptians would have classified him as the Tehinu. And the mm -hmm. thing is that we also discovered that a lot of the Egyptian art and the way they did things started in the Sahara before mm -hmm. it was even in the Nile. Right, like, for example, right. mummification. Mummification, right, exactly. exactly. The, the, Neteru, the Neteru Ampu or Anubis. Mm -hmm. You know, this was all in the Sahara. That's why it's important for us to study the Chad people, the Nar, the mm -hmm. Garamantes, the right. Tehinu, the Fulani, the Mindi, it's a, the Nook civilization. All right. this stuff is powerful because yeah, Kemet was a people. Yeah. The mm -hmm. people. Kemet was a baby of that. So we really can't, you know, it's in, we got to study the Mudar language that Mustafa Gadala talked about, which was the predecessor of the Arabic language. Then we got to study the Nabetian people because they used to call Berbers Nabetians at one time. Then they get the name. They got all these different names. A Berber is no different than a Nigerian. I don't care what he looked like today because he bred with all these different people. We got to look at the time periods in North Africa. You know, in the Atlas Mountains, you have Indo-European type women coming over like the Sami women with Mighty Conjure DNA H. The Almohad Berbers was breeding with these women in the Atlas Mountains 9,000 years ago. Then you got the period when the Greeks come in and, and as early as 700 B.C. They was in the Sahara before they was in Egypt. And then you got to think about the Roman period, 30 B.C., 
the Phoenicians they came in in 800 BC. Um, who else? The Vandals in 429 AD. This is all part of the autosomal DNA of what a Berber looked like today. He's watered down a mulatto. The Arabs come in. 690 AD, 641 AD. All that's responsible for why these people look the way they look today. Mm, I think that's important too when, um, when you're dealing with the Berbers. I recommend that people get the book uh, Black Morocco. Get Black Morocco because this is a story from the Black Moroccans about their particular history. And as we go to page 110, it reads that the, uh, the authors of the ancient source material called the Heretan are called, quote, the Ethiopians of the West, unquote. The late Jewish sources from rabbis who lived in the Draw region called them Cushites, or black descendants of Ham. And then it further goes down and it says that the ancestral form of the term Haratani derives from the Berber word Adhardan, which is connected with skin color. It means dark color. The earliest known usage of the term among the Berbers of Sahanja and Zanata before the great Arab migration of the Banu Hassan. The Berbers speak in Turag people inhabiting the West and Central Sahara and Sahel use a similar term to, de to designate a person of both black and white parentage. Ahardan. Among the mountain dwelling Berbers, the Sahaja origin, the term designates a person with a black skin. Ahardan in contrast with the white Amazigh. So just understanding the, the different variations of that, I think we get a lot of uh, a wealth of volume of information of uh, black Moroccans of Mauritania, Morocco, these original inhabitants uh, telling their own story, which is very, very important. Um, another branch of what we're dealing with today is the slave trade. Is the slave trade accurate the way that it's taught, and is the slave trade real? What I like to know is how do you feel when when you hear the story of someone who's trying to minimize the slave trade? That didn't happen as much. Uh, the the slave trade didn't exist at all. Uh, coming from the perspective of the sisters, um, I'm going to ask both of the sisters that are joining us today, Sister Sheila and Sister Danielle. How do you feel when you hear someone? attempting to minimize or say that the slave trade that it didn't exist. How does that make you Would either of you like to to speak on that? Um I I honestly I've dealt with it a lot. Um my father's family is actually from Puerto Rico. So um I consider myself black and Puerto Rican and in Puerto Rico, they like to say that, um, you know, they consider themselves Hispanic, but they want to say that they're white. And um, I always embrace my African roots because I know that if you look back at even um, Puerto Rico's history, you know, um, the natives that lived there before any Spanish um, Portuguese, anybody else even came to the uh, to the island, you know, the natives there were dark-skinned natives. Um, they, they say that they were blacks, they were Africans, and then, you know, they even brought slaves over themselves. So when people try to minimize it and say that it didn't happen, I just think that um, 
it was just big cases of one, they want to deny that history, and two, people that I grew up with, a lot of Puerto Rican people I know, it's a lot of self-hate. They come to the United States, and even though we are U.S. citizens, you know, a lot of people don't look at them that way if they know, they see you, you're dark-skinned, um, you look black, they want to classify us all as black, and a lot of Puerto Ricans don't like that. So I just think it's a shame that um, people try to minimize and, and say, oh, no, you know, there wasn't slavery or they didn't bring over as many people as they try to claim they did. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, that's really just my opinion on that, and I just look at it as my perspective um, growing up, you know, with that Hispanic background. I think that's very, very important because when you do study the Taino or you study the Arawak people, especially the Arawak, they just try to say they were just all erased, like they don't even exist. But if you have any aspect of understanding Puerto Rican culture or just how the Boricua and how it actually blends together, when you do study the Taino people, they definitely have a distinct African history within the DNA, within exactly. the culture, within the music, within the way it's expressed spiritually. Um, so anyone who is indigenous and in tune, I would definitely say to, to embrace it and to pass it on to continue the, the rich lineage. Is definitely a very distinct, and don't allow someone else to, to sit there and try to tell you a story that, oh, no, the Tainos, they got all moved away, or the Caribs. The Caribs got all, all they, no, they got destroyed. No, they're still here. There's still a branch of indigenous people, and the culture is still alive, still expressed culturally and through the music and through the spirituality. So I think you're definitely doing the right thing by making sure that you, that you stay uh, well in tune for yourself as well as for, for your family. And, uh, and also, um, for Sister Danielle, how do you feel um, also a, a, as a sister when you hear someone trying to minimize or, or, or say something like the slave trade didn't exist or wasn't as bad or, or, or that the slaves were happy? How does that make you feel as a queen mother, sis? Hello? Yes, sis. Mm -hmm. Okay, so here's my opinion on the whole thing. I think a lot of people who are saying that the slave trade didn't happen I think some are saying out of, out of self-hate, but then you do have some of those people who are bringing up valid points and valid questions like, you know, how did they bring over 3.5 million people over here, you know? I mean, and they're not, they're not saying that slavery didn't happen, but they're trying to kind of come up, bring in all, all these different questions, you know, relating to the fact that there were a lot of us who were already here in the Americas prior to um, slavery happening in America. So, you know, they're, they're not saying that they're not black. They're not saying that we didn't originate from Africa. What they're saying is that the people who we call Native Americans, like, they're really, we're really the people who they call Native Americans. That's what they're saying. So that, I mean, that's just how I take it. I think, I think that's important also. Um, keep keeping it in perspective, and it's easy to get caught up in 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 our emotions and being extremely offended and defensive when we hear someone. Because I've heard people say, you know, the slave trade didn't exist. Where are the slave ships? You ain't got no slave ships. You ain't got this. You ain't got that. How could they wreck? You know, three or four months at a time and just so 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 so. So I I do hear the people who you know, and that is a very very uh, offensive. But also on the flip side, you know. 
we've had some of our greatest scholars like W.E.B. Du Bois put put the total at a hundred million or even even more at at a hundred you know slaves that come over. Realistically, how many people can you really fit into thirteen states? Hmm. I mean, so so realistically, if it was a hundred million people that came from Africa, if that's what you're saying, they only had thirteen states at the time. I mean, the West is is very new. You know, I mean, the West is right. very, very new. Once you start going past the Louisiana Purchase and all that, going out west, that was in the 1800s. So that was, you know, that's that's new in comparison to to the country as a whole. So how many people are you really going to fit into 13 states? You know, now you do, of course, to consider South America and the overwhelming amount of the slaves that went to South America. But on the flip side, I don't trust anything that the enemy says. So that is only 10 to 12 million. I'm already going to put at least four times as many as that because you're a liar. And I know that you'll sit there and you're trying to convince me that six million Jews suffered on this, but you're trying to tell me that only 12 million of us. So six million Jews went into the Holocaust that you're trying to convince me about. But you're trying to get a middle number like 12 million African people that went to South America as well as to the Americas. When I already realized that there was so much that happened on that, that they recorded, so many people of us that got killed in the Middle Passage, in the water, as well as before you even got to the slave dungeons in Africa. So we're talking about a far higher number than what you're trying to tell me. But mm -hmm. at the same time, I have to keep it realistic of how many people can you really fit into, you know, the areas that they're saying that the slaves were. And also, as you pointed out, Sister Danielle, that there was a lot of relabeling and renaming. There were a lot of people that were already here, and if you study the census records, I went and studied my family history that's documented going back to 1585. And I've seen where they've taken my ancestors and they've gone from Native American to mulatto to black to Negro, the same human being. So I've seen the same families just in those census records of when they started the census of how they relabeled us. So I know that they, you know, if you study Plecker and what he did in Virginia, he made everybody, whether you're Native American or African or whatever, he named them all Negroes. If you were from a tribe, he erased you and just called you a Negro uh, through the census records. So there's multiple stripping in order to steal land, in order to steal birthrights and switch mm -hmm. identities. They took indigenous people and relabeled them certain things. Um, either and on the flip side, white. If you were like Hispanic or Native American, they made you white so that they can boost up the numbers because they were trying to uh, get funding and get land. So they made indigenous people and they made them white also. So you know we have to realistically keep things in order. So I wouldn't necessarily say it was a hundred and plus million, but at the same time, I know that it was definitely far more than twelve million. Also. So I think that's maybe a way that we can look at it. Um, do any of the brothers have any feedback on that? How does it make you feel when you kind of hear, I think Brother Abba, you were going to say something, or, or was that Brother James? Oh, I don't know if that was, I, I was just listening, but, you know, if Brother James wanted to say something first, because I, I don't think we heard from him, I'll definitely let him go. I definitely want to chime in on the topic. For sure, brother James and Jeremiah, like to like to share anything, please. We'll, we'll be happy to to, to uh, have you on. Yes, sir. I appreciate that because I, I'm I'm one, of course, that you know that has taken the um, 
uh, opposite end of the spectrum. I'm just going to list a few things and then I'll come back to um, my point because I've been mentioning some things in the group room about taking on the opposite uh, that there couldn't have been as many uh, slave ships to bring kidnap uh, Africans over here. Uh, I'm just going to listen, mention a few wars. Some of them were prior to, um, you know, the 13 colonies as we know them, or the, the uh, United States at that time. Uh, we have King Philip's War, which was from 1675 to uh, 1676. Then we have King William's War, which was 1689. I'm not going to give you all the dates, but you can just look them up. Then we have King William's War. We have uh, Queen Anne's War. We have King George's War. We have the French and Indian War. We have the Cherokee War. We have the American Revolutionary War. We have the Franco-American uh, Naval War. We have the Barbary Wars. We have the War of 1812. We have the Creek War. We have the War of uh, Texas Independence. We have the Mexican-American War. We have the Civil War. And then after that, there's some things that, you know, we could talk about that in another group session of the Spanish-American War uh, that took place in 1898. Now, I just wanted to go and kind of mention a few things about those wars that are taking place, and these are dealing with your Europeans on the land, not mentioning the wars that they had with the Moors on the sea, that these pirates of the Caribbean that they had with Jack Sparrow and all of that and, and the, the skull and bones. This was representing our people, the Moors that were fighting them at sea. And there are also mentions in the, the battle that they have, that the Moors chased the English right back up into the English Channel. So it was impossible for all of these ships coming from Europe just freely going across the Atlantic because these Moors, for lack of a better term, were giving them hell. So I'm mentioning that the indigenous people that were here in North, Central, South America, and in the Caribbeans were those that were enslaved. And what they would do was they would take those that were in North America, take them down to the Caribbean islands, season them, move them into South America, and vice versa. Because there is no way that they could have done what they were doing on the seas with the Moors sticking it to them every single time. If you just look at the numbers uh, in the ships, when they say, okay, 200 people were in a ship, 300 people were in a ship. Now, I tried to do this just in jest to feed myself some oatmeal laying flat on the ground. It's impossible. You'll choke off of that. As I was mentioning before, the Jews that were uh, financing this transatlantic slave trade, it is not a smart investment to invest in human cargo going from Africa, from, from West Africa to the islands and 90% to 95% of your cargo wouldn't have made it. They, they would have terminated. You can't stay in a ship like that with urine, feces, women are going through their menstrual cycles, this whole nine while they're on this voyage. That's impossible. I mean, just think about the numbers. If you're laying, laying foot to head, foot to head, foot to head in the belly of the ship, there are no windows. And if anyone has ever been on a cruise, when you hit that turbulent waters, 
it's just not possible. I'm going to kind of get off the mic here and there's something that may want to mention something and I'll come back because I have some more evidence to support um, what I'm stating. But it's just some things to think about. And that's why I said that's why I take a different stance than most others because, yes, slavery did happen. I would never be one to say that it never happened. I'm stating that a lot of these, and I have records as well, Brother Itch, when you mentioned how your family can go from Indian, and I have uh, have proof of my ancestors that fought in the French Indian War that were labeled as Indians, and then they got labeled, like I said, they kept getting labeled, and then they were forced to label themselves as Negro, and then once you put in that category of Negro, now you're stuck. So now you're thinking in the category of slavery, but that I'm kind of skipping a little bit. That goes to the, the trail of tears and the things that uh, were starting with Thomas Jefferson and what Andrew Jackson did. So if anyone else wants to jump in, I am going to uh, yield the mic. I think that, I think that's I think that's excellent. I think you definitely um, tap into so many key points and things that really do need to be addressed. Um, you're absolutely right. A lot, a lot of the history, it's uh, I have a, a I have some some works that I'm working on that's actually dealing with some of that that aspect of what happened. Um, Brother Jeremiah, did you have any feedback on that at all? Did you have anything that you wanted to share on that? Yeah, but I'm uh, kind of unorganized right now. Um, but but I am definitely uh, listening. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, I think that aspect of, of slavery um, is something that we you know that we have to always keep it in perspective. Study study the logbooks. Study study the, the the ships, you know. Is it is it the amount of ships that we take? And then realistically, how did white people get here? You know? Uh, there's an overabundance of white people that are here. And they were here before they came uh, during the the, the the Statue of Liberty uh, transition. So what about those those old white people that came here? They came here on ships. So is it just as simple as, you know, people who ask, well, where are the, the slave ships? Well, where are the slave ships? They brought the white people over here. They didn't fly over here on a flying saucer. Obviously, they came over here on ships. So, you know, those same ships that brought white people are the same ships that brought black people. But, again, we're talking about the numbers. Do the numbers add up? You know, do, do, we, do, do our families have history of being relabeled? And are we relabeling ourselves right now? Are we fighting? to be called a Negro, whether it's AKA African-American, AKA color, are we fighting to, to, you know, before these titles had to be imposed on us? Because like we showed earlier, we had a nationality when we arrived here. See? Every one of us had a nation. Now we're fighting to be called something else and we reject a nationality. So we're fighting to be called something that's stripping us of ourselves willfully. So, you know, that's something that we really have to question. Because our ancestors fought to maintain their national identity. And now national identity is something that's being rejected. Is that because, you know, are they rejecting it because of the messengers? Are, are the messengers not, not saying it too you know, nice enough for you? Or, or are you just a willful... Know, a willful slave. That's something that we really have to question. Because a national identity is something that the vast majority of the people identify themselves as a nationality. So if you're willfully fighting to not have a nationality, 
I think there's something mentally wrong with you. Or you just right, been right. wrong information. Maybe you've been wrong information. And we have been faulty in our duty of, of not explaining it to you correctly. So I think it may be a mixture of both. You know, we all have illnesses in, in our heads. We all suffer from that. But we can also uh, put out the message better to make sure that it's palatable and understandable to the masses of the people. It has to be put out respectfully, but it has to be put out realistically and firmly. So um, I think that's something that we really have to consider. What were some of the other things that kind of stood out to you? Is there something, something else that kind of stood out to, to any of you as far as maybe some information that was in the form or maybe something that you see in the news? We have a lot of things that are, that are transpiring right now. We have, you know, politically, politically, we touched on that a little bit yesterday, how important politics is. Um, Brother Abba, I know that you dealt with some things like uh, starting a political party. Why do you think that it's important to emphasize a political party? Brother Abba, I know that's something that you, that you oh, take great pride in. Why do you I, emphasize I, that? Oh, honest. I, I did want to touch on that slave ship thing. But yeah, please do. Let's, let's deal with that first. No, let's, let's deal with that first. I'll, I'll, I'll try to make it brief. Yeah, no I do not deny that the slave trade and the ships, I don't deny any of these things happen. I do, however, have questions, as does the brother uh, James, and the, you know, the sister brought up some very valid points earlier, like where are the slave ships, first and foremost? You know, and that's something that can be debated ad nauseum. But these numbers that we get, they they do seem, they to me, they seem conflated. Again, I'm not saying that the slave uh, trade, the transatlantic slave trade, did not happen. I, I will not say that. But I want to bring up a very valid historical point that many of our people are not aware of. It centers around a man whose name was Antonio X. He was called Antonio the Negro by the European colonists. Now, Antonio came over on a ship. On this particular ship, he met his wife, Isabella, on this second ship. They came over. He was a servant. He worked seven years and brought himself out of slavery. He changed his name from Antonio to, uh, I believe, Anthony Johnson. Him and his wife got married in a Christian church. They became Christian. They had a, a baby boy who was Christian in the Jamestown, Virginia church. And what this highlights, and this was touched on in, what, what was that, the Negro the Negro Journal, I believe it's called. I'm trying to find my source as I'm scrambling. I'm on a new laptop and I'm not at my computer, so uh, where I have all of my references at. Okay, this is from the Black World Negro Digest, February 1966. This article was written by Lerone Bennett Jr. on page 70. And I cross-reference many of what the points that he was making. He was saying how our people started, like, this this idea, first and foremost, that we were dragged over here in chains, starting in 1619 with the first 21, or is it 1621 with the first 19? I always get those two confused. I always get those confused. 
But nevertheless, these these people weren't dragged over here in the way that we have been accustomed to, you know, our programming, watching TV that these Europeans came, these quote-unquote white men came into Africa, they snatched us up, they dragged us in chains, or we were captured by our brethren, by the European, just dragged in chains and brought over here. No, according to this article and the research, the cross-references that I was able to pull up, this is how many Moors, if, if, if you will, as the brother James said, for lack of a better term, I think it's the best term, but that's just my bias. <laughs> um, but this is how many Moors came over here. You know, they, as the article says, uh, quote unquote, blacks made the leap from Portugal, Spain, and and in South America, Com coming over here, like uh, Elijah Muhammad said. In his lessons, they were told that they would receive more gold for their labor, more than they were making in their own homelands. And this is, it turns out to be an actual fact. These first groups of Moors that were coming over here were, these were just servants. Jo uh, Anthony Johnson, who was formerly Antonio, he had his own land. He had his own home. He sued a European man and won his case in a colonial court. Like, much of what we have in the slavery narrative is off. So now we have a time period when there's this, okay, we're bringing these people over here, our ancestors over here, and when I say these people, I'm speaking from the European perspective, we're bringing them over here. And the time allotted from when this, this first 19 or first 21 came over to the time where this was just this illegal slavery, we're capturing you so that you could forever be bound as slaves, this is something that has to seriously, seriously be discussed. Because what happened to that first 21? If we're going to use uh, Antonio, who became Anthony Johnson, if I'm saying that name correctly, yes, as yes, the correct. measuring Anthony stick, Johnson, that is correct. Anthony Johnson as the measuring stick, well, then we have to say that same fate had to have been for everybody. Maybe his was the most prominent because we have a record of him being married and, and baptizing his child and, and suing in the court. But now at what point do we bring 100 million? Okay, not 100 million. At what point then do we bring 12? Remember, the slave trade was outlawed by Congress in, in, the, in the 1800s, where, okay, slavery wasn't outlawed, but the trade from bringing men from the African continent was outlawed in the 1800s. That time period in between whenever, and, and Noble Dwali noted that 1774, 1779. So in between this time period, let's just say, <laughs> 1619. Right. Okay, the first 21 come over seven years after that. Right. That's what, 1626. So now, I mean, in between this time are all of these men that are coming to Virginia being brought over to be bound to slave. This article is saying these people made the leap. They came over here willingly. The opportunities were better. It was said that the treatment was better. And we evinced this by 
the record that shows that, oh, this brother was able to sue a European man in court over a slave. And the judge said, yeah, you're right, Brother Anthony Johnson. This is your slave. So this slavery question, and I, and I want to speak real quick to the self-hate issue. I think it's a mischaracterization to call it self-hate. I don't think that's what it is. I think that there's a group of people that don't want to just be identified as slaves. Prophet Noble Drew Ali said every nation has suffered slavery because they honor not the creed and principles of their forefathers. Well, you know, we've suffered slavery. It's just a fact. And whoever denies that on the Moorish side, I think is crazy. But I don't think that is self-hate. I think that's a mischaracterization of it. It's to say we are not descendants of slaves. We are descendants of a bloodline of great kings and queens, and that this slavery was something that happened in the period of our existence of a people, but it is not a thing that defines us as a people. And that's what I believe that these people, those Moors specifically that deny the slave trade, are trying to say. And let, let me explain why, why that's so important and how that comes full circle, if I may. And just adding a bit of a backdrop behind the, the, the Anthony Johnson storyline, Anthony Johnson is so significant, as Lord Abba said, was because he was the first person that made uh, here in America slavery permanent. In other words, before this court case of Anthony Johnson taking it to court, it was only established as indentured servitude. You do three years, or you do five years, or you do seven years, and then you're free. You get land allotted to you. You work your land. That was regardless of if you were black, if you were white, if you were whatever you were, if you were Christian, basically. This is the way that the system was set up. Anthony Johnson did his five to seven years. He got his land. He then had slaves working his land and after the five to seven years the slave said I'm supposed to be free which he was like I'm supposed to be free but my master Anthony Johnson who was another black man is not freeing me the white man who was a neighbor who owned another farm said you're free you've done your time he's supposed to release you you're an indentured servant you've done your time uh, so you can come to work for me I need some help on my land. I'll pay you as a free person, and then you can accumulate your money, buy yourself some land, and go on about your life. Anthony Johnson said, wait a minute. I'm not freeing you, but the seven years are up. I've done my time. No, that's not good enough. We're we going to make this a permanent thing. I need this help for real, for real. So he took it to court, as Abba accurately stated. He took it to court. He won the court case that then set precedence that a slave can be held forever in perpetuity as the status of slavery. It was a black man doing it to a black man that established this case. Those original 20 were considered blackamores. You studied the records, they were considered blackamores. So Anthony Johnson was a blackamore. Why I said that it comes full circle is that the first slave that was held permanently, his name was John Punch. That's his name. 
John Punch is the ancestor to Barack Obama. That's why you need to study that. Barack Obama, through his mother, not his father, from his mother, Barack Obama is the descendant of John Punch, the very first slave in America. Oh, wow. I, well, oh, that's deep. So what I, I would recommend, look that. absolutely. What I would recommend for the people to do is to simply Google John Punch, first slave, Barack Obama. This genealogy came up in around 2011, 2010 or 2011. This information that he's a descendant of the very first slave through his mother. So again, John Punch, Anthony Johnson, like Abba said, you can study that history. And Barack Obama is a descendant of that. So it all comes back around. And also the prophetic words of Noble Juali about your brother selling you back into slavery. <laughs> be very, very careful of the knowledge that goes on around you. And, and study that particular history because it's, uh, it's a deep history. And again, it ties into bloodlines. That's why it's so important to study bloodlines. You understand? And of course, the people already know your history before you're even selected to be president. They know who you right. are. They know who the revolutionaries are. They know who to assassinate. They know this. They know what you're capable of doing and how important bloodlines are. So they cut off bloodlines of certain key people. And you wonder, man, why did so-and-so get whacked? Oh, man, so-and-so was a real warrior in the streets of Chicago. They already study who you are before you even realize who you are. So it's very, very important to understand that. Can we go back to tribalism? It can go back to tribalism indeed, which is why the Maroons were separated from having any ties to Islam. Those original slaves that came from Spain to the Maroons, they wanted to make sure that if you had any action with the Moors or Islam in general, it was minimal to none. Because Islam being tied with that with those warriors was a major problem of up uprising uh, on plantations. They were very very quickly to burn things down and not accept slavery. What were you about to say, brother? And um, should should we go back to tribalism? Should we create tribes? We should always yes. We should identify tribalism. We should always move as tribes because tribes are are the most effective way of community. It's something that's natural. Your, your natural instincts and DNA will kick in when you are amongst people that you identify with. Tribalism is our most effective way to unify. So on any level, we should always be very tribal-minded. You know, that's what, that's what brings our communities. That's what brings the love back. That's what, that's what brings the respect back. You know, there's a lack of respect. There's a lack of direction. There's a lack of, a lack of wisdom. There's a, a lack of, of respect for eldership. You get all of that back by proper tribalism because we have traditions within tribalism. So we're able to express ourselves in a natural way. You know? So it's good to have a community established and you have a tribal type of a mindset. You know that the great mother is the great mother and she's respected as that. And the babies are going to be well cultivated and loved and the men are going to do their roles to protect them. And the women are going to do their, their, their roles to complement the men and not try to be the man, but to complement the man and her strength and her beauty. And she's going to be respected for that. And the man is going to do his responsibility to protect and to defend. 
and to earn also and to be equal you know not to be less than but to be equal to and understanding everything has its balance that's what tribalism will teach you so you absolutely we should embrace that okay um, should we create our own or should we fall under the um, Moorish identity I think that we're at a status now I think we're in such a unique position now that we have to be able to create our own whether it is under the guise of a Moorish tribe that, that's really that that's fine I think that's fine but if not we, we are very peculiar that's why they call slavery a peculiar institution we went through a very unique form of of enslavement and us being robbed of so much we have to be able to say you know what I think there, there was an extreme thing that uh, Elijah Muhammad was teaching people and he had to give them an extreme medicine in order to get their mind right so he had to come and bombard you with a lot of extreme doctrine to get your mind right to say oh that's the devil right there make no mistake about it you know and we identified that I was to say you know what this is a message to the black man in America. That's why the book is called that. We were very particular in a condition in America. So his message was made that way. Noble Ali was sent to Moors in this area here with a specific message. Not to follow someone who's over there in the east. His message, I'm sent to you to, to, to give you a message. And that's why every people should always have a prophet that's specifically sent to them, a messenger for them. Because this person comes up uh, from them. And, it's, and yes, I think that we need to either create our own tribes and still merge together as a unified overall tribe. But yes, I think that's the wisest thing to do. Okay. Um, how can one go, well, how can one go about leading the people without um, becoming a messiah, if that makes sense. I think one of the most important Or is it inevitable? Things, no, I, I think it's a mistake to be a messiah-led people because once the, once the leader dies, then the movement dies. And I think that's the mistake that we make over and over again. The wisest thing that a true leader can do is to establish a council of people. And in a responsible way, each person that comes in, in a cooperative way, you all become leaders. God dwells in each and every one of us. You know, so if God dwells in each and every one of us, why would I worship another man? I refuse to do that. I'm not made to I'm not made that way, to be honest with you. I'm not made to be submissive to a, to another man. I'm just that's not in my my particular DNA. But I feel as if my duty and obligation is to awaken and to enliven the leader within you. So if you are my brother, or if you are my sister, I have an obligation to let you know that you are God. And, 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 and awaken the inner God within you. So whatever your abilities are, the Creator will bless you. So you know, if there's a strength that I have, I have the strength to do that in other people. I can enlighten other people to the greatness that's within them. And in doing that, I meet a lot of people as brothers and sisters, and now they're my equals. So the strengths that I have enhances the strengths that they have. I think that's the responsibility of a leader. Leaders exploit people. Go ahead, Brother Adam. Oh, my bad, my bad. I wanted to address that because I, what that question that the brother asked is so vital. And it is a part of, I guess I could call it my stump speech, if you will. And I speak about Prophet Buddha. Prophet Buddha says, no one saves you. No one will and no one may. 
you alone must walk the path. This is echoed by Prophet Nobuzu Ali, who said, I cannot save you, but if I could just get you to thinking, you will save yourself. You see, I, I preach this all the time. We don't need anybody right now to hold our hands. And Ish just said, Ish said what Prophet Noble Juali did. I don't know if he realized it, but Noble Juali set up the Supreme Grand Council. He set this council up. He says seven men tried and true, not all men, because it was females on the Supreme Grand Council, just using man as the that term that we use it as, but encompassing male and female. And this is why I always said I always wanted to do like a two or three day summit where we just threw everything up on the screen and we all came together and we just seen what made sense, what is applicable, what can be applied, how do you win in American society? And we we the leader messiah syndrome is a plague right now because it's like okay, we're still waiting for that one individual to come and hold our hands. The Christians are still waiting for Jesus to come out of the sky. And, you know, and ah, Noble Ali, I thought, said one of the most profound things of all leaders, which was, I can't save you. If I could just get you to thinking, you will save yourself. So he dropped these little bird crumbs, if you will, breadcrumbs rather, so that we could just pick them up and follow along the path. Those people that you see that are, Worshippers of the man, like this is why I'm putting some of the business out there. This is why a lot of the brothers just don't like me because I'm not cut from that cloth. I see what my prophet was doing. Our lessons teach us that the master's footprints is clearly cut and everybody can see that he went that way. So when I success leaves cool. So when I look at not just no Mujuari, what did Garvey do? What did a lot, what did these leaders do? Okay, now, brothers and sisters, how can we come together, sit down at the table, form ourselves a council? One of the things we came up with was the Universal Human Improvement Association, camel backing off of, of Garvey, see if we can get something like that going and, and just try. A lot of people, they don't like me, so when I come up with an idea, they're like, I ain't messing with that, dude. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to put the facts out there. And say, yo, the path that we're going has us spinning our wheels in mud. So somebody got to yell at y'all real quick. And that's just going to be me. So I'll accept the role of the bad guy, period. But the idea is still there. The Universal Human Improvement Association, because humanity has fell all over the world. And we're taught in the Morris Science that what will happen with the Asiatics here in the West will happen all over the world. So it's time for us to come together and recognize that we are leaders ourselves. But like our lessons also say, men love to follow and not lead. And that's our problem right now. We're waiting for a Messiah. We clearly don't see the Messiah within ourselves. I think it's also very important that I, I, I laugh when I hear so many people make misjudgments about uh, Noble Drawley and what his overall message was. You know, they try to limit those who follow Noble Drali to just either a Circle Seven or just the doctrine within the Moore Science Temple itself. How foolish. The greatest gift that Noble Drali was able to leave was that he created scientists. And science as a whole is ever revealing. So it's not limited to a book. 
is something that's ever revealing. So we're always going to be growing. He made more scientists. When you are a scientist, that means you're always in study. And when you're always in study, you're always advancing things. And people act as if you're just locked into an old doctrine, when in actuality, if you're truly a scientist, you're always going to be dealing with the modern times. Whatever the newest information is coming, you're always going to be applying that and then advancing yourself and your people. He had a command in doing that for Science Temple. And I just really think that a lot of Moors are just getting the, a proper understanding of that. I would say probably within the last eight to ten years. They're really understanding that. It's not the art of regurgitation. It's the art of being active in the science and advancing it in the modern time. So when Abba comes in and he's saying, wait a minute, I'm going to show and prove everything the prophet said. He's using modern technology in doing that. The DNA says this, and I'm going to get the information from this scientist over here and this brother and sister over here, and my knowledge and information and scholarship here, and I'm backing up what the prophet said. That's very rare because too many times people were just regurgitating a doctrine and saying, I believe it because he said it. That's cool, but that's too religious for me personally. I don't take a person at their word. So I think it's important that we take the information and we're able to prove the information with modern scholarship as well as in modern science. One of the questions came up from Brother Dominique Reed. He says, can we talk about why the Nation of Islam never talks about the Moors or changing our nationality? And why do Sunni Muslims always kiss the Tukis of the Pale Arabs? So again, that question is, can you talk about why the Nation of Islam never talks about the Moors or changing our nationality and why the Sunni Muslims always kiss the butts of the pale Arabs. I, I, let, me, let me say this. Let me say this. The Nation of Islam has a, their own paradigm with their own teachings. You know, I sat, I was front row at the Savior Days event. And when I understood what Prophet Noble Drew Ali brought, I wondered why the Nation of Islam wasn't knowing that. But at this particular Savior's Day, Farrakhan said some very important things. A political party. He said, how about if we come together and start our political party and call it the Justice Party? I fell back in my seat like, what? And the sister, of the wife to the brother that, that I was out there, well, she kept looking at me like, Abba, you been talking about this? Or everything this man was saying. Uh, the sister just kept looking at me like, you was talking about this all weekend, you know. So, I, look, they have their paradigm. And I don't think that we as Moorish American Muslims should try to force our paradigm. You know, of course, I had a little bit of that in me at one time. Yo, why y'all ain't trying to be, look, that's their business. That's what they do. That's how they teach. At the end of the day, you can never take nothing away from the nation of Islam. You could talk about their doctrine, the Yakub theory, the mothership, and all of that, but and the, they had businesses, fish, stores, ships. I mean, these brothers owned blocks. They had their own just about everything, restaurant. They gave us a blueprint for us to run with to be successful. So I, you know, that's not something that I'm looking at. Why the Morris, you know, the nation of Islam rather doesn't speak. Or teach about the Moors, you know, that's not their thing. But what we can do is we can take what they have done 
collectively, whether you identify yourself as the Moorish Science Temple of America or not, and come together and say, look at what these brothers did in the 1970s. They were the largest employer of, of quote-unquote black people in the United States of America, period. What a, how have we dropped the ball to whereas we are not emulating this great accomplishment? I think those are the more important questions, you know, beloved, with all due respect. And the other one about the pale, the Sunnis kissing the pale, look, man, I don't know. People, people do what they do. You know, let's not, I think our focus should be so solutions-oriented that it doesn't leave room for questions that just kind of take up space in our brains, and it leads us to nowhere. We've had enough of that already for over the past, that's why I left the Amin Ra squad group. You know, I got tired of the, you know, just the name calling it, because it forces you to come back and be like, man, y'all dudes is corny. Y'all dudes is lame. Now we just went all the way outside of the conversation. Now we calling each other lame and corny and cornball. I'm like, I'm out of here. Because that's just we wasting time with those questions. With all due respect to the person that asked the question. Like, let's think about solutions. Forget that stuff. Those thoughts, that conversation of a brother of a Moorish brother did get on here. Somebody that identifies themselves as more would have even answered that question. Brother issue that I had to mute my mic because I would have cut him off. I would have cut him off. Straight right. up. And I, I, I think it's also important to understand the totality of the history itself. Uh, the, the Million Man March, uh, what was it, like 20 years ago, I was assigned to secure three people. I was a lieutenant of the Nation of Islam at that time. And I was on the Capitol steps. And the three people that I had to secure that day was Isaac Hayes, Will Smith, and Sheikh Sharif. The third person I'm talking about Sheikh Sharif. Sheikh Sharif was an elder in the Nation of Islam, and he lived in Washington, D.C. Wise elder. I, I, I honor him so much. He, he imparted so much wisdom and knowledge to me. Sheikh Sharif was one of the people that Elijah Muhammad uh, came to see when he was on the run. Elijah Muhammad was on the run from elements of the Nation of Islam who wanted him dead. So he was on the run and escaping out of Chicago, he went to Washington, D.C. And he would teach at the homes of Moors. He would go to the Moors' homes and he would do his teachings uh, preferably on Friday evenings, Fridays and on Sundays, but particularly on Fridays. Sheikh Sharif was one of the people that was there. And he would explain that the house would be so bursting with Moors getting information from Elijah Muhammad that it would not only of course fill up the living rooms that he was at but it would fill up all the way down the hall and if it was upstairs people would be lining up in the stairs where everybody would just have to be quiet so they can hear teach. That's how full the houses would be but he knew that he could go to the moors to get the teachings and that he would be able to share the knowledge and information so he went back to the Moorish family and that was for the years that he was on the run when he was not even in control of the nation of Islam. So that's a very important aspect of the history. And if you talk to some of the older people from Washington, D.C., they will be able to verify that. And I am positive that the older people in Washington, D.C. will know Sheikh Sharif because he was held in very, very high esteem. 
So those are the three people that I had to secure at the Million Man March. Sheikh Sharif told me that story directly from Elijah Muhammad because he was there. So the Moors and Elijah Muhammad had a very, very good and a sacred uh, brotherhood and family-like relationship. I just wanted to make sure that that was also known for the record. <clears throat> um, did anyone else have uh, any questions? I, I, oh, I think we're also talking about. I think you also talked about the political party, brother Abba, but brother Jeremiah, did you did you have a question at all? Um, yes, I do actually. Um, I have a question for um, Lord Abba. Um, I wrote you a while back. I don't know if you remember, but um, I asked you if the Moore Science Temple in Cleveland was affiliated with the overall um, uh, temple, um, and you told me that they were broken off, or they were like a sect or something of that nature. Yeah, uh, the the movement is, is fractured among itself. This is just a natural fact. You know, I'm not one of those people that try to sugarcoat, gloss over anything. I'm just going to speak what's real. And that's what's real. The movement is is fractured. And you have different groups or sects, if you will, of the MST of A. Many of them claim to be the original Morris Science Temple of America. You know, but I'm like this. If you're going to go to the temple and your purpose for going to the temple is getting, you know, yourself spiritually aligned and, and getting the teachings of the MST of A, then go go to the temple. You know, if there's some things that you may question, come back and holler at me or come back and holler at other astute Moorish Americans and say, I don't know, this brother is in the temple. You talk about we ain't really supposed to have driver's licenses. Then I'm going to come back and tell you that's not true. Or some brother talk about Scipio Africanus is where we get the name Africa from. That's not true. That's just not true. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and you know, but I, I don't try to deter people from certain temples, you know. And that is that is what goes on in this movie. And I'm putting it out there. But that's not something that I do personally. But that is a fact that there are, you know, the movement is suffering through a, a decades-long schism. And, you know, but things, I think a lot of cross-conversation is starting to happen. A lot of younger Moors, not even necessarily even younger Moors. you got some, I've spoken with some elders over the past couple of months that are getting pretty tired of certain things as well. So, you know, a lot of people from the outside looking in, they're starting to really become inquirers of, of this, inquiring of this, this, this organization because we need organization and I think it's something that resonates with them. So I'm not one of those brothers that turn people away from the movement, you know, but I'm going to keep teaching. So if you join the temple, just make sure you don't say, but well, brother Lord Abba, a.k.a. Sheep Wayne right, right. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, Get not him not out of here. Right. No, I'm right, just right. Right. No, I'm just playing. They just, right. I, I, they probably they wouldn't do that. But, I, but you know, I hope I answered your question. And, and, yes, I, and I think those politics are what turns off a lot of people. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Those, those internal politics of, well, I'm from this line and you're not from this line. And, mm -hmm. and if you notice, if you study things like, um, was it Braveheart? 
maybe this brave the one with William Wallace is that what it was William mm-hmm. Wallace right yeah if you study the William Wallace you know this piece this person was saying that we're the real true nobles and this one was saying no we're the nobles and then William Wallace just basically put his sword right on the table like that's why all y'all gonna die because y'all still talking about the nobles and men <laughs> right, don't right. follow that you follow courage you know right, you gotta be that more that has the courage to say I don't care what y'all talking about. That's the reason why y'all haven't done nothing in a hundred years because you're waving this 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 thing saying that you're the noble. This side saying no 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 we got the truth and you're fighting for the one who both sides respect. You want to be the person that both sides respect because they know that they're really punks. They really haven't been mm-hmm. doing the work, but they know that the men mm-hmm. are following the one who's in the middle, the one who's bringing. Mm-hmm. Who's mm-hmm. yo? Let's go. Let's go kill England. Let's go kill the king. Let's kill them all and let's go get our freedom. That's right, what you're supposed right. to be. You're supposed right. to be that person that's to right. say, I'm the new more. I'm cutting down the middle of whatever y'all talking about. I'm not trying to hear. I'm running the that's streets. Right. The streets are with me. The warriors that's are with right. me. The prisoners are with me. And once you're that person who's in the middle, both sides are going to get in line or die because it's prophesized to be that way. You're supposed to be that warrior in the middle saying, I don't care what you're talking about. That's me personally. I don't care what they talk about. My job is to put scholarship on the table and to keep it moving. Now, they can get on board and get on board with me. If not, I don't care what they do. And I look for other people who have that mentality along with me because that's who I align myself with. So they can hold their noble paper here. They can be the reincarnation over there. I don't care. I don't even know those people's names, whoever they're claiming that they, they represent. That's irrelevant to me. I deal with the Moorish history from an African solid perspective, and I'm trying to build a nation. And those, that's the focus that you should have. And I respect Moors who understand the balance in that. The William Wallace mentality. We need more of that. Yeah, that's me. William Wallace, baby. All day, every day. Right, right, right. How long? Uh, but, um, how wise would it be to to create another doctrine for the people? Would that deter them from being um, uh, independent um, of the mind, or would that create a messiah-like complex? Now, I, I, I definitely want to answer this because it's. Like we teach in our lessons that truth does not change, neither does it pass away. Truth don't change nor pass away. That means if it was true a hundred thousand years ago, it was true a thousand years ago, which means it's true today and going to be true a thousand years from now and a hundred thousand years from now. So it's not necessarily based on a new doctrine. The, the, what is Moorish science? It's but the study of self. That's that's ba- that's the basis of what Moorish science is. It's the study of yourself to know of your higher self and your lower self. That is the key aspect in every. If you read any religious text, any religious text, that's what it's about. It's about the higher self conquering the lower self and the grand man. That's what the Jesus story is about. You are the Messiah. You is just something that's locked dormant within your soul, but it's within you to become that particular Messiah. The very story that you read, a person that overcomes pain and temptation and hurt and destructive habits and all of these different things. 
Like that's the basis of what our doctrine is about. Many people have never opened up the Holy Quran of the Morris Science Temple of America, aka the Circle Seven, and actually read it. The only thing they hear, yeah, but they took that from Levi, and it's like, well, beloved, if you read it, you'll see that Levi didn't originate the lessons. He just like fancied the stuff up. That's all that that was. He fancied up a bunch of ancient wisdom. I was able to match the ancient wisdom in our Moorish Quran with the ancient wisdom of Tahotep of the fifth dynasty, almost bar for bar, word for word, line for line, if you will, or concept for concept, just to show that what the, the that wisdom is the same. It just may be spoken a different way, but it's just it's wisdom. And we didn't have that wisdom. We were so conquered by Christianity, right? Then you had Islam that became so dogmatic on its end that, and that was through the Council of the Ulema, that the esoteric aspects of the information was called um, heretic. And, and so you had these Sufic orders that started to pop up because, you know, the information of an esoteric nature, which the Quran says, some of the verses are clear, but some of the meanings are, they have hidden meanings. Which, and it's going to you know, take a, a pure one to decipher. I don't have that quote off the top of the head. So it's not that you necessarily need a new doctrine. You just need to understand you know, what, the, what that little pamphlet is saying, that little small pamphlet. See, that little small pamphlet is what I call the self-chin checker because there's no, you know, you're not trying to reach this level for anybody else other than yourself. You start to realize, man, this thing is talking about me. Yesterday I was just mad and angry over something. Today I'm all happy and jovial. And that's what it says in the book, speaking about inconstancy, you know, speaking about marriage laws. And, you know, so we look at the book first. And then if there's something that you disagree with, you can say, you know what, okay, I, I didn't agree with this or I didn't agree with that. I think we may need to institute a new doctrine. So, you know, that's my advice. I urge everyone to just. Read the doctrine first. I'm not saying you have to be a member of the organization, but at least understand it. So, and then not only that, read what the man Noble Drew Ali was saying himself. Because then you'll say, okay, what Noble Drew Ali is saying makes common sense. What in the world is half of these mods out there talking about? Because that's what I did. I'm like, most of the stuff these people are saying, Noble Drew Ali is not saying. He's the standard bearer. He's the person that we should say, okay, this is what this man is saying. Why are you saying something else? And we, I think if we understood what this man was doing from the civics, politically, which we, you know, hopefully will get to, and we've been building for a nice long minute, but, you know, you, you'll gain a better understanding that, you know, what is the doctrine? What, like, really, what is the doctrine? We are friends and servants of humanity. And we've come to try to help our people uplift fallen humanity by the best means that we can, particularly in this society. The prophet said it takes finance to uplift the nation. He ain't say be poor, righteous teachers. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I ain't trying to knock nobody. I'm just saying that, you know, that wasn't his thing. He, yo, it takes finance to uplift the nation. All right, how do we get our business weight up now as a nation of people, as a group, as a collective, as a membership? You know, these are the things that we need to look at as as Moorish Americans or even those on the outside to say, you know what, I'm feeling 
what those brothers are doing because I may see a group and be like, yo, I'm, feel, I'm feeling what the Urban League does. I'm feeling. We could talk about the NAACP and how they got formed, but guess what? I know some personal cases where the NAACP came in and helped certain brothers in the prison where they couldn't get no help from the sovereignty laws that got them jammed up in the first place. So I'm feeling what the NAACP is doing, the Urban League, um, the National Action Network, the Rainbow Push Coalition, all of these groups have something to teach us, but we need to understand what it is that they're talking about. Have you ever read any of their constitutions and bylaws? Have you ever read their mission statements and things of that nature? So now we'll know how we need to operate as a group, even if we're going to just act in an individual capacity. Say, you know what? I read what you're about. I want to come on board and I want to help you know where I can. I don't agree with your Islam and your Moorish, but I'm, I'm feeling y'all. So, you know, I, I want to assist. And, and, and what, I was, what I was saying for that is that to, to back up what Brother Abba is saying is he's saying get really, really familiar with what Noble Jolly taught. Understand the depths because the, 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 the third seventh Quran is a metaphysical book. You know, it may seem like it's small, but there's so many layers to it. A lot, of, it's so much symbolism within it. I got a firmer understanding of what the Quran represented uh, in 1992 when I was able to go through the Adept Chamber. It put a metaphysical understanding when Sharif and I went through the Adept Chamber of what I was supposed to be doing and putting it into a way that really made sense to me. Once you get a firm understanding of the science side of the Morse science, then you are supposed to, as a scientist, develop methods. And if that tool is a book, then you develop a book. If it is a manual, you develop a Morse manual. Whatever tool it is, whether it's academic work, whatever is going to bring the people and to uplift them, you create these tools in order to do that. So yes, it will be okay once you understand the depth of the doctrine itself and what the intent is, it is okay to, to create a book that's going to make it easier if that's the tool that you would decide to use. Okay. I see. I see. Okay. Yeah. Um, oh, let's deal with the civics before we call this a session. What was it that you wanted to emphasize about the civic side of things, Brother Abba? That was very good that you brought that up. Thank you for that reminder. What was the, the emphasis on that, please? Yes, definitely. Um, just real briefly, man. You know, just I'm gonna start with politics and civics. They just they go hand in hand. Civics is what understanding the functions, the the functionality of your local government and your rights and duties as a citizen. Like we cannot escape that. There's so many different people that are speaking about things. You know, we, we hear people that speak against the voting process. we got to understand we are in the United States of America. We can't shun the political arena. I used to be one of those people. I was born 5 percenter. My pops taught me that politics was poly meant many and ticks was a bloodsucker, so all politicians were nothing but bloodsuckers. I ran with that stuff. For years, but guess what? Right. The, the Moorish lessons teach us that the wise man doubts often and changes his mind. 
The fool is obstinate and doubts nothing and knoweth all things but his own ignorance. So the more I study, the more I understand. So I'm looking at Prophet Nobu Ali like, yeah, I see why he got into politics and said that anybody that didn't cast their ballot was nothing more than a political slave. This is the rules. And uh, this is the rules. The rules is to get us so involved in presidential elections that we place all of our emphasis on that. Right now, we're all caught up in Trump and Billary. I call her Billary Clinton because she's nothing but a combination of her, hus her husband's policy and her own dirty. All right, let me let me call myself. Be easy, be easy, So I call her Billary Clinton, but um, we are not. Who's where you live at? Who's gonna be the next mayor of your town? Like I know the guy that's running out here. I've sat with him. I've sat with the, the congressman over our district. You know, we sat down and we had a power. His turn to he lost his bid for mayor. Young hippie looking dude, but he's made so many strides since then that he's gonna win the election. Now the key is, is he gonna have enough of the quote unquote African American vote? So I'm gonna do my part to get out there to get this brother in. Well, he's not a brother. He's a he's a European. Uh, I mean, get the European American in because he's a good dude and I've spoken with him and I know what his platform is. I know what he represents and what he represents is not this broad uh, uh, Eurocentric quote unquote white supremacy worldview like the mayor that we have now. His whole view is totally different and inclusive. And when we, when we had a chance to chop it up, when I chopped it up with, with some of his minions that was out there doing the grassroots uh, work, going door to door, I was able to see and say, okay, this is somebody that I will support. This is what we have, all politics is local. This is why we formed the Moorish American Party. You know, some people say it's the name, it's the name. Okay, well, if we can come up with a better name, let's coordinate with the Nation of Islam. Let's call it the Justice Party. Let's do something so that we could effectively make moves. Everything that ever went against us in this nation, particularly since the adoption of the Constitution, right, has been done through legislation. It's been done through legislation. Whites only, blacks only, and all of these different things. This is this stuff was basically legislated into a lot of the states, laws, code, statutes, ordinances, etc. But guess what? If we had that same power, the prophet said, how would you like to have your own mayor and chief of police? We've never once thought Yo, let's get our own city. And then when somebody like me would bring that up, we need to have our own cities. The self-sabotaging nature of our people's mentality, the first thing that they said was, man, they're going to bomb us. You see what they did to Black Wall Street? So that's going to just stop you from doing anything and just keep you complaining or sign out of TV? No, beloved. So like, we have to take politics very very serious. It's not something that everybody needs to master, but it's something that a few of us can master. I look, I listen to Ish, right? <clears throat> For instance, I look at certain people in certain ways, and I look at them through a scope of professionalism. I look at Ish. I've said this like two two years ago. I said Ish seems like he would be would make an excellent mayor of a small city. <laughs> Real talk. I, you know, I look at certain people a certain way. And 
because I'm thinking about power. My motto is don't fight the power, become the power, and then you'll have the power to affect change. So why are we not pressing for power? Our goal shouldn't just be financial or, or um, you know, <clears throat> we have to get economic security for all 43 million people. And that's that's going to be a difficult thing to do. But if we have power, if we control the Senate, if we have a party, if we are on the CNN magic wall and they're talking about the your right-wing Christian groups and then they're talking about this group and that group and then they say the Moorish Americans, right? And I'm just speaking specifically from my bias right now. They say the Moorish American group, however, are all voting one way because that's how Nobu Ali had the newspaper clipping. I just put up like 78 pictures on my wall. Uh, on my in my photos, it said elect Anderson profit. That means every single Moorish American was is was voting for uh, Lewis B. Anderson. Every single Moorish American voted for Oscar de Priest. So right now you're gonna have some Moors or quote unquote black people voting for Trump, and you're gonna have a majority a majority of them voting for Clinton. Imagine if we had the power to control that. Tupac. I'm, I don't want to be long-winded, but I love this subject. Tupac said, one day, God willing, I'm going to start my own political party. It's going to be black mother efforts, <laughs> Mexican mother efforts, all you lost tribe mother efforts. He said, we're going to have our own party. God willing, I'm alive four years from now. There's a phone conversation with him and this West Coast legend brother named Monster Cody. Monster, He's building with Monster Cody about what he wants to do. And he said, I'm going to start throwing block parties every week. I'm going to ask every rapper to come through and give up one for free. He said, and once we build it up, we're going to start registering the people to vote. He said, I don't care what Democrat, Republic, Independent. He said, once we got that, once we got enough people, we're going to march the city hall and demand ours. He said, that's power. Tupac understood the mainspring that drives this great republic. And, and Nobu Ali called this constitution one of the greatest documents of all time. I, I struggled with that at first. I'm like, what? What is this? This man is he kind of bugging out with some of this stuff at first. But now I understand this constitution. And I think, Brother Ish, we need to have broader platforms on, like, Lysander Spooner. He wrote a book called The Unconstitutionality of Slavery. This should be a textbook. Like, every you know, quote-unquote Afrocentric has message to the black man in America. This should be the textbook for every last one of ours written in the 1800s. Lysander Spooner's The Unconstitutionality of Slavery. When you read this, it starts... It's an to, outstanding book. Oh, man, it, it starts to break the mental shackles of and the games that these Europeans played on us, making us believe that we were second-class citizens. And they used the names... That deluded to slavery to do it. Negro, black, colored. Man, you know, uh, I'm going to end on that, but it's just something that I want you all to think about. Politics is power in this nation. We see it all the time. We have the same pathway to that power. We have it. Don't ever think that we can't become the president or the governor or the mayor or the congressman or a senator. Never, ever believe that. Never, that's what they wanted us to believe. Think of, i got to say this. If our votes didn't count, 
if our balance was so unimportant, why are these people going out of their way every election to step? Long lines at the polls today in, quote, in all the black neighborhoods, <laughs> in all the black districts, we had these six and seven hour long lines. New voter ID laws are sparking outrage in some redneck communities. Forgive my phraseology. But I'm just saying, they're doing these things for a reason. They know how powerful your ballot is. 45 million of us can sway an election. Could you imagine if just 20 million of us was all going one way? These politicians would bend down on their knees and say, what is it that you need? We don't have to beg them for nothing. We, the power structure is right here. The only thing we have to do is learn how to play the game. This is what Noble Drew Ali was showing us. With that, I'll say peace. Okay, uh, peace. Now, not to get too spooky, but um, and not to get too theoretical, but as Brother Ish stated, um, they know who the revolutionaries are, per se. Um, how would it look for them to allow a revolutionary figure to take office and actually lead the people? You know, if you... Um, Look at uh, Brother Chakwe Lamumba. He mysteriously died, um, but that's just one situation. Um, do you think that it's realistic to seek office? The, the politician isn't going to necessarily be the revolutionary leader. That's, that's not, I, I don't equate the two. Um, one is within the confines of the system. The other one is designed to overthrow the system. To be a revolutionary means that you have overthrown the system. So whether it takes a physical insurrection or whether it's working outside of the system, that's what the focus of a revolutionary is. The politician is going to work within the system and understand that there are strides and gains that can be made by working within the system. There's a power within your vote as long as you're holding those politicians accountable. So if you are the person who is representing this aspect of the people, there's going to be power in what you can do in order to bring an influx of money and funding to help change your condition of your community. So those are tangible changes that you can make working within the system. To be revolutionary, that's, those are the people who say, that means nothing to me. So in other words, when you had the Vandals going against the Romans, the Romans would then say, look, we have been in rule for hundreds and hundreds of years. We are the Romans who defeated Hannibal. We are the great Roman. And they would put this with their, with their documents, and they would say, you are the Vandals, and you are now under Roman rule, and here's our documentation. The Vandals would then take that piece of paper rip it up in front of the Romans and say, we can't read, and then split a axe down the middle of their skull. That's revolution. I don't care what you're talking about. My job is to kill you. Mm -hmm. So in other words, that's revolutionary. And the only one who beat back the Vandals were the Moors, the African Moors, when the Vandals were just wrecking shop, not caring anything about what they were talking about. They weren't civilized. They're only, that's why it's called vandalism. Their job was just to come in and pillage the whole village. They would come in, rape the women, burn down the village, and keep it moving. That's what vandals do. So that's, that's the mindset of a revolutionary. I don't care about your system. Your system is now done. We're done being killed by you. We're done 
your system means nothing to us and we're moving out on you. That's a revolutionary. So you find a balance between both. When revolutionaries are identified, revolutionaries and more, like, more than likely their seeds have already been identified of who they are and either they try to control those seeds or they already know to exterminate that seed. That's why you study people like Farrah Gray. His father was already identified and they made sure to keep him in pocket. So when Hillary Clinton was giving her speech, they put him in the front row so that he could be seen on camera cheering for Hillary Clinton. That was by design. He came and showed up. Hillary's staff came and sat him in that area to be in camera shot for a reason. So they identify who you are and they treat you a certain kind of a way. Either they try to control you, and if they cannot control you, then they do whatever they're supposed to do in warfare. But that's what a revolutionary is, and you don't expect for a politician to be a revolutionary leader. That's a conflict of interest because one's going to buck dance for a dollar, or they're going to say, I'm going to promise you this, but they're only going to be very limited on what they can do. Uh, a, a lawyer, a lawyer is not going to be a revolutionary lawyer because he has to work within the framework of Robert's rules. So Robert's rules or working for the bar, you're going to be limited on what you're able to do because you still have to be in accordance to the bar in order to function as a lawyer. So a revolutionary doesn't care about any of that stuff. That's the difference, bro. I see. How does the Moorish American Party fit into that caliber? Would they be considered a revolutionary movement or is it strictly a political party? That aspect of it is a, is a political party. It isn't, it isn't revolutionary as far as what its focus is because Moorish Americans, you know, you're working within the fabric of the Constitution, understanding that the Constitution itself is a breathing document. It's a living document. So within the framework, you have to define where you fall in under that Constitution. Are you 13th Amendment? Are you 14th Amendment? Is this applying to you? Because there's, 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 the, the document is covering a vast amount of people. That's why they make amendments. So if you're a 14th Amendment citizen, you are a citizen. Now, what level citizen are you? You have a second-class citizen, and there's perks to be a second-class citizen. If you're a Negro and you fall under the 14th Amendment, you get perks for that. Now, if you're outside of the 13th and the 14th Amendment, like the 13th Amendment, for instance, that deals with the status of, of slavery and, how, and the rights of slaves of being acknowledged a certain type of a way. Now, if you're really free, you know, say you were a, a descendant of, of Native American tribes, that really doesn't pertain to you. And you were given a status called freedmen. So you'd have to study the treaties of 1866, the treaty treaties. These treaties are where the freedmen are why they're getting kicked out of the Cherokee tribe and they get kicked out of the Creek tribe because they had their own treaties and understanding. My family indeed came under the 13th, uh, or not 13th Amendment. Our families had a, treatment, a, a treaty called the Fort Jackson Treaty. And under the Fort Jackson Treaty, certain amounts of families were given their own reservations. And their reservations. Uh, uh, gave them indigenous rights by that agreement of the treaty, but it was not under the 13th Amendment. So you have to find out where you fit in at if the 14th or 13th Amendment even applies to you. But it also covers freemen. So there's a difference between being freed and being free. When someone says that you're freed, that means that you are, that's with a D on the end, when you're freed, that means that you're falling under the jurisdiction as property, and now you're being freed. 
a freeman is a sovereign or a person who has is not the bonds of slavery. So there's a difference when someone calls you a freedman and when someone calls you a freeman. And the Constitution will call them both as a second class and one is an actual free or first class citizen. So there's different levels to it. You see. How will we um, gain independence, do you think? Do you think um, we as a people will ever have true independence as a whole, the type of independence that we think about, um, as did George Washington from the British? Do you think we'll um, have that type of independence, uh, a separate state, country, a nation? I think so. I think it'll take a level of insurrection. I think major insurrection is what it takes. Don't know when it, when it will happen, but I think it will happen very organic, and I think that it will be it will happen when when the masses uh, will will come to that understanding. What are you about to say, let, brother Abba? Let me let me say to that. One of the oral sayings, Prophet Noble Drawley states, and allegedly states, because we have to take these oral sayings with a grain of salt. He says, "I am going to leave them here just long enough to teach you how to run a government." And I think that's vital because if you, let's just say one of us on this panel right now became the president of the United States of America. Let's just say we know that we cannot be compromised in any way, shape, form, or fashion. We know this. We know that we're not going to let the poor remain poor in our nation while we give $60 billion to uh, little countries like Israel give, or what is it, a 10, 6, 10, 15, 16 million dollars or something, maybe even more to Egypt every year. We're giving financial aid to uh, Syria. I mean, all of these different places, but it's all. But we're not doing nothing really for the poor here. And this is something that President Barack Obama was accused of. Now, you got to be delicate when you're walking on the political tightrope because you have federal and then you have state. But as a the federal government, I can take $5 billion a year and put it to... to, to uplifting the American citizen. So, you know, I think I think that's revolutionary in and of itself to get one of us, like literally one of us, in that seat, in, in positions of power in general. And this was one of the things that Noble Drew was demonstrating with all of those different politicians. They was eating out this man's head. I, you know, until we have the political power Nothing revolutionary will really happen. And I understand Ish's analogy, and it was a perfect analogy. But I think I think that's revolutionary as well. If we could control 20 to 30 million votes, I mean, how many more Spanish-speaking Americans are going to be on our side? I, I would say another 20 million, you know. So we we I just think the conversation needs to be had. Because we are truly in control of our own destiny. If we do nothing, nothing will ever get done. And that's what it all boils down to. If we do nothing, nothing will ever get done. And I think we need to have broader conversations. You know, we need to 
not just go in on a show like this and just strictly speak about uh, history and DNA and stuff. We should dedicate a show where I came on and learned, you know, and it should be no less the same for somebody that like like Brother Ngozi who deals with science and DNA to come on and learn about American history, two, three hours of American history and why we got in this position, what legislation was written to, you know, all of these different things. And we need to, like, kind of start mixing up these conversations so we can understand how we were great, how we fell. And most of it, like Prophet Noble Drew Ali said, he said, I've traveled to the South. I have examined conditions there, but it, it's the actions of my own people not living the life. And through those actions, they themselves brought about Jim Crowism. Now, why do I say that? If you go and read Justice Curtis's dissent to Dred Scott, he not only said that the quote-unquote Negro was eligible to vote in the South, he said the Negro is eligible to hold office there. That's like people got to go. That's another thing that we never got into the dissent. What did the, the, we got so caught up on the Dred Scott, you would never really be a citizen. What did the two dissenters say? This man said not, this, and this ties into Lysander Spooner's unconstitutionality of slavery, because Curtis was echoing a lot of what uh, Spooner was breaking down in that particular treatise. And, you know, it all starts with a conversation. We all looking at the leaders right now. That's who we are. We are the lead. We are the ones having a pertinent conversation about everything, point blank, period. And people are coming to listen to us, whether it's Sarnetta, whether it's Amin Raswar, whether it's Morris Science Radio, Ali's Men Radio. And the people are coming to listen to us. That means what? That means we are becoming the voices of the voiceless. And if we can start having more conversations centered around how we pull ourselves up, how we have finally achieved what it is that that basically that utopia that you're speaking about, brother. And I, I don't think that it can't be done. My, some people call me a, 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 a what they call me a hope hopeful naive. Well, that's exactly what I am because I really believe that it can be done. I believe within a five year period, if we can all get on the same page, because there will be no physical unity without mental unity. You don't have to believe and the Moorish doctrine to be a member of the political party. You could be a diehard Christian, a diehard Hebrew Israelite. Doesn't matter. We need We have a political platform now. We can't stand on street corners screaming about our problems anymore. We can't go in courtrooms fighting about, you know, certain stuff anymore. Because, you know, we believe, no, nah, that's, that's not the path. It's just we back to spinning our wheels in mud. We need to start having serious conversation, and they need to be like something that's broadcast, like House of Consciousness debates. Everybody need to see this stuff all over the United States of America. So I'm willing to build it. You know, Ishmael, you got to build about that 14th Amendment citizen thing, you know? For <laughs> sure, for sure. Yeah, exactly, thing, exactly. You know? It's very important. And, um, exactly. Yeah, you know, like a lot of these different topics we got to build. Like that's like I'm on this platform today. I came on this platform today, dead serious as a student. I ain't have too much to say about nothing. To be honest, I, I like learning about you know when Ngozi be talking like a thousand miles a minute. E1, B1, A1, and then they came out of the Arabian and then that Tufian. I used to be on the phone like, all right, I gotta speed my brain up so I can catch everything. 
this dude talking about. And right. I like I was enjoying those conversations. So when I knew that this was gonna be the show, I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna peep this. I like hearing about DNA and all of that. And before I finish and before we get off, there's a question I've been meaning to ask you all night is which yes. DNA service did you use? Um, I used a couple. Um, I used 23andMe. That gives you the overall mm -hmm. DNA of your makeup and, and the percentages. Mm -hmm. I also mm -hmm. use uh, AfricanAncestry.com. That deals with a mm -hmm. small snippet of your DNA, 1% or even less than 1%, but it identifies your African tribal markers. Is they, have, they have one of the largest African databases, so they can identify which specific African tribe that you identify with. And then another branch of AfricanAncestry.com, Dr. Rick Kittles allowed me to participate in one, another aspect of his, uh, of his, uh, his company personally. Oh, beautiful. Um, so he sent me a kit and I, I took care of that also. So those are the two companies that I use, African Ancestry and 23andMe. Yeah. Definitely. Okay, definitely. I'm looking at 23andMe now, so I'm thinking that's going to be... I always said I was going to do it. I just never pulled the trigger and did it. But right. I'm going to do it. And, you know, this show definitely prompted me to hearing uh, Ngozi break down your your haplo groups and you asking the question about 20,000 years. And I'm like, okay, I want to know what mine is going to be talking about, 120,000 years. Yeah, yeah and they, they have internal blogs there. Once your results come back, uh, mm -hmm. you, you get a chance to enjoy, join different kind of blogs and stuff. You'll have cousins that you okay. won't even know. There'll be second, third, fifth, or sixth cousins. Oh, and wow. they give you the opportunity if you want to wow. reach out to them or they out to you and they, they send you saying, oh, cuz, you know, we're fourth cousins or we're third cousins or something. People you never even know, wow. but then you're able to trace the names or maybe where they come from and find out how you interconnect. So you make you make uh, relationships that way also. A lot of internal information. They have a really tight system in there. They also give you the opportunity if you want to, you can have your results um, destroyed at the laboratory. Because sometimes, you know, the police can by court order, get your DNA. You know, that's if, right, if, if right. a case coming up or something, but you have an option on there to make sure that your DNA does not, that it gets destroyed so that law enforcement cannot get access to your DNA. And you can do that at any time, but if you do it after the initial time, it takes uh, 30 days for them to destroy your, your DNA. So they give you the opportunity to okay. do that. Um, and they include okay, things exactly. like yeah, I'm gonna... medical things. Maybe you may have medical questions in the future or something. You know, it might be able to say, oh, well, glaucoma is in your family or something. Like some things okay. can be identified potentially in the future. So it's a very beneficial company, I think. Oh, definitely. Thank you. Thank you. I'm definitely going to get on that, man. But, brothers, it's been a great convo. Yes, thank you so much for that. We appreciate you, brother. Thank I'm, you so much. Honest, honest, man. Honest, man. Absolutely. Honest for having me on. And Yes, I love I love Bill. Let's set up another platform. You know, one day let's really get into a lot of this American history and 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 how things happen, dealing with the backroom deals of the 1877 compromise and how that spurred the rise of the Ku Klux Klan. And like we need to we need discussions about this in a way not that it's highlighting the event, but more so what happened how it happened. Now, how do we reverse these things, being that, you know, certain elements are no longer obstacles for us, so that we can just simply rise up. You know, that's it. 
Correct. Easy. Correct. I think it's, and, I think it's make sure we do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah definitely. Part of the history and the Freedmen Bureau, how the land got stolen from from right. from, from our people, how black why they, they even set up black institutions mm -hmm. like like historically black colleges. Why why is that even in place? That's These are right. all very crucial things that we need to answer That's right. that That's I think right. the public will be beneficial from. I just uh, posted up in our forum, again the forum is called Amira Squad African Moore Scholarship. I just posted up the the Obama John Punch for you. I put your name on there so you can check that out. And uh, the people are welcome to join. Please make sure you subscribe to my page so that you will be able be able to be up to date when we are doing our shows. We'll be doing some live shows uh, from this branch of our, our squad as we continue to move out on the things, the tangible changes and the solutions for our people. Um, Brother has already shared um, uh, the part of his uh, statement. Brother Jeremiah or Brother James, did you have anything that you'd like to share before we call it an evening, brothers? Well, um, I guess um, I hate to be uh, rhetorical, um, just on the topic of insurrection and revolution and independence. Um, I just don't understand how how we can merge with the system and still have independence as a people. It seems as though we have to compromise ourselves at some point in time. Uh, oh, all right, wait. Please, please, it's just real quick. Let me just say real, real quick. Of course, yeah. That's not true, beloved. But that's not true. That that we have to we don't have to compromise anything. There's a a Hindu there was a Hindu group that came in the nineteen seventies. They brought a city. It's either in Iowa or Idaho. The Maharashtra Vedic city. Oprah went there. And she was amazed by what she saw. It was like this little spiritual city right dead set in the middle of America. All of their houses face the rising sun. Every day at 6 o'clock, the whole city comes under this big giant dome right here in America, the Maharashtra Vedic city. They come under this giant dome. They meditate every day. There's children in the school when a bell get out. You don't hear no wild yelling and screaming. You hardly hear a peep as the children move. Oprah was standing there like, what in the world is going on? So these people didn't compromise anything. Nobu Ali says something important. He said, we will practice Islam insofar as it fits into this American life. At the end of the day, the realization is that we live in America. And my thing is this. There's nothing wrong with the system. There's something wrong with people, these bigots and these racists, who keep getting elected within the system. Our own inactivity our own, we don't want to support or be involved in the system, keeps these people in their seats of power. So that district attorney that kept getting voted over and over and over again, or state's attorney or whatever, well, you, you never pushed them out. So he kept favoring the cops every time the police officers kill somebody. You know, So we got to look at these things for what it is. And that's why I said a more roundabout discussion must be had on this topic. So I just wanted to touch, say that to the brother. I think he fell off just now. But, like, don't fight the power. Become the power. Then you'll have the power to change. That's my mind. And that was, that was the federal government that kicked Brother Jeremiah out. They know that he was probing too much. 
I would say, and it's in this it's going to be definitely, like I said before, tangible uh, uh, changes and strides that you can make within the political fabric. And that's not to be ignored. You know, the person who's huffing and puffing and yelling in your TV screen and sweating your howling revolution every, every week, they're not going to do anything for you. <laughs> Those are the ones no. who are supposed to be so super radical, and they put themselves in, they live in a black bubble and put themselves on a black island, and they're super blackity black, but yet they're on Facebook. Mm -hmm. So they don't see the contradiction between howling revolution and still being on Facebook. So, so the, but you can make tangible changes and strides if you can be uh, at the table with your politician and your politician has just got funded for $30 million and now you've been allotted $3 million for your community. You have right. now made revolutionary change. Why? Because now you've opened up a charter school. You now have started programs to where your people are now applying the skills that they've learned or maybe inmates can now have a place that they can go to once they get out of the penile institutions. You have now made revolutionary tangible changes within the fabric of the system. So there's tangible changes that you can make while working the political. Political is a science. So once you understand the science, and we're scientists, once you understand the political science and how it works, you'll understand how to use that as a weapon how to use the political things to work on your behalf. That's right. At the same time, if you're really one of those super radicals, you're not going to care about the political system. Your job is to make sure, look, whenever I get the call, my job is to set it off. I'm tired of what's happening. There's power in that also. Whether you take the Malcolm approach or the, 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 the Martin approach, there's power in both. But understanding where that balance is and understanding how to apply both, that's the true skill. So the revolutionary, the revolutionary is really not concerned with the political, but the political understands his or her power in order to make those tangible changes that the people need. So that's what we're going to strive for, and that's where we have to get our understanding from because we're scientists. So, uh, Brother James, did you have anything that you would like to say before we depart, Brother? I just want to say uh, outstanding forum once again, Brother Ish, Lord Abba. I've been uh, following your work for a long time as well. You keep doing what you're doing, brother. Keep your head up. Uh, I wish that uh, Brother Jeremiah was still on here. I was going to kind of just shoot him a little bit of advice. Um, one area to start is getting involved um, on your boards and commissions. The, uh, all of your major cities, uh, towns, and municipalities have, you know, several boards and commissions, uh, and it's just strictly voluntary. You sign up for it. They uh, pick your name, but how you select it is make sure that you're in contact with your uh, local representative. Get to know your local representative. Ask your local representative questions. When they have these forums, go to the forums and ask questions. That way, they know who you are. They put a name with a face, and they say, okay, this person wants to get, get involved with the community. And then from there, you say, okay, get enough people together and support. Run for council. Once you get a, a feel of how things go, the um, you know local politics go, make a run for mayor and move your way up the chain. But what we do is, is we get so upset when things don't happen the way they should happen, and we don't understand the process. 
we think, and, and, and I know this from being behind the scenes and attending certain meetings that council members vote on an agenda item based upon how many people in that area vote. And I just know from my area that I live in that when it comes to um, and whatever you want to label yourself, and I'm just putting out there, the, the black vote is about 3%, 3.7% of the people vote, of black people vote in local elections. So that's something that we have to change, and then they're not even registered to vote. So they come and find that's out right. the fact that if you're registered to vote, and it's an item that you're really passionate about as a people, that, that mayor, that council, council member, your alderman, they're going to think twice about the decisions that they make because they know you have the power to vote them up out of there the next cycle or even go to the, the point of being them, having them recalled is what they're doing in Philadelphia now. They're in the process of trying to recall their mayor. When you have a political platform to stand on. And I'm going to say this, and it's going to you know, make some people upset. You know me, Brother Ish, I'm kind of controversial. Uh, but uh, when we put ourselves in labels as Negro, Black, and Colored, we have now placed ourselves as ward of the state. And this is by law. And when you do that by law, it's equivalent to you being a, you are a minor, you are a child, you are a dependent. So they don't and when I say they, I mean those are positions of power, those that consider themselves white on uh, the social experiment of what we call race. They don't consider you as an equal when you come and say, well, I'm representing the minorities. So now you're lumped in with everybody else. And Brother Ish, you spoke on this before in the other forum. So now all these other people are now ahead of you. Dr. Claude Anderson speaks on that so beautifully. Everyone else has moved up the food chain because we've lumped ourselves, we've placed ourselves into a category of being lesser than anyone else. And I'm going to say this because i got to go back to it. Uh, Brother Ish, if you could get Brother uh, Ngozi, I tried to catch him before he you know, went off because some of the things that he's been talking about is going to get him in trouble with some of his allies because he's tipping on the same thing we've been saying, talking before about the Moors and the origin of Moors and who they are. So when you get a chance, I'm going to go back and, and um, listen to his segment on the YouTube and yeah. it's going to get him. I'm going to start plugging those segments in and sending them to him. It's going to get him right. in trouble because he's on the same path of what we've been saying historically. He's proven it through DNA. Absolutely. And go to his Moors identity. Uh, 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 he, he's just an amazing human being. He, yeah, he he understands exactly what's going on. Yeah, Yo, sir. real quick, I had Angozi come on the show, Morris Science Radio, on Sunday. No mm -hmm. haplo groups, no, and just like talk spiritual science. I was amazed. Yeah, I'm talking yeah. about this dude was going. And he had me like, yes. "Yo, man, am I studying enough of this stuff?" Right, <laughs> he, right, he, right. like. This right. guy talks about DNA. He just came on his show and Correct. demonstrated like a real grand sheep dog. Correct. Like a sheep. Right. I mean, he yeah. demonstrated. I definitely give shout outs to Brother Eagles. Definitely. Yeah, he's very he's very humble as as far as the way, you know, the, the information of what he comes out and shares. Man, this brother's a deep teacher, man. I'm proud to call him an ally and a teacher of mine. 
and just a brother. He calls me a teacher, but I call him a teacher also. He's a he's deep man. I, I thank a lot for him also. Yeah, yeah. So I definitely want to want to um, thank y'all, uh, brother uh, Jeremiah. Wanted to apologize uh, for for the call dropping. He wanted to make sure he sends his uh, apologies to everyone for that. Definitely. I want to so thank uh, each and every one of the people who came in and participated in the forum. I want to thank the sisters that participated also. I want to again welcome and, and uh, invite people to come and join us on the Amara Squad African Scholarship Forum. Um, it's where we're dealing with a lot of the more solutions, the tangible solutions. Absolutely no drama, and it's uh, it's an environment where we are able to really get down to the to the tax of things, and I think that's necessary. So um, again, I want to thank uh, Lord Abba and Brother James for sticking into uh, the end and for the technology working in your behalf, not losing y'all. And uh, I want to thank the viewers <laughs> for taking time for the very good questions that they had uh, live time, as well as the inbox questions of what y'all had from uh, yesterday's show and for today's show, and just some ideas for the future. If it's something that actually um, catches your eye of the topics of what we're dealing with, please feel free to reach out to your brother Ish. I'll be happy to assist you if it's something. Uh, we'll also be bringing in other members that we did with Brother Ngozi, other members of the Amiral Squad to come in and answer uh, questions that you may have. We're happy to share and expound on information. We'll have some of the hard-hitting sheiks to come through, like Lord Abba and the other ones that will be coming through. We'll be having Sharif Bey coming in soon. And we'll be having someone that's very, very powerful and somebody that's very special that's, uh, that's coming through a very... Uh, powerful special guest that I think you're really going to enjoy very soon. So I want to thank you all for coming and sharing information with us and for spending your time with us. And I want to wish you an honorable squad up and continue peace and blessings to you and your family. So thank you so much, family, and I'll talk to you all soon. Bye-bye.